4: For me, that wasn't an option. I never
5: really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
3: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Amy, and I'm sitting here at my desk. In my home, in the foothills of the beautiful North Carolina mountains, and uh, Virginia, the world's most gorgeous Boston Terrier, is sitting next to me. We just came in from getting the mail. And, oh, look, we have a package. I wonder what this could be. To open this up here. bound pretty well. Oh, check that out. Starship Sofa, the Captain's Logs. That is a seriously gorgeous cover. Well done, Dee. Nice and glossy, gorgeous graphics. And here are the transcripts. Let's see. We had the foreword by Tony and the episodes about Alfred Bester, Joe Haldeman, Harlan Ellison, Douglas Adams, Parts 1 and 2, James Tiptree Jr., Samuel R. Delaney, Religion and Science Fiction, Charles Strauss, Extra Bob on the works of Terry Pratchett, and Moorcock Gonzo. This looks so great. I can't wait to read the transcripts of the shows that I enjoyed so much listening to. And you know what? This is worth it just for the pictures before and after of the transcribers. You brave, brave souls. The transcribers did a fantastic job. Craig, Doug, Will, Phil, Steve, Robin, Gail, Parrish, Tarran. Well done, indeed. And, you know, it makes a very satisfying sound, too. Yeah, that's 328 pages of joy right there. Ah, the memories of Karen saying there and Tony saying to be quite honest. And, of course, calling things pants. Tony, I don't know if I ever told you or not, but I saved the Douglas Adams episodes to listen to for a long time, knowing I'd know exactly when the right moment was... And it turned out the right moment was being stuck in the airport at Denver, Colorado, when my flight was canceled. And I ended up having hours just stuck in the airport. And all around me, people were fuming and fussing and angry at the delay. And there I was, plugged into my iPod, grinning like a loon and occasionally bursting out in uncontrollable laughter and it was exactly what I needed, so I have particularly warm fuzzy thoughts about those shows. Well, I'd love to stay in chat, but I had some reading to do, so I'm off. Looking forward to getting into this volume, and I want to say congratulations to everyone whose hard work went into making this, especially since, as the pictures suggest, the effort left some of you either in a straitjacket or definitely needing one. <laughs> My thanks to you all for making this available. Well done indeed.
4: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to Oral's Light Show 143. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, I hope everyone is fine and well. Big thank you to Amy H. Sturgis there. Got the copy of The Captain's Logs. Amy, thank you so much. Listen out later on as well for Amy. Amy is doing the narration to this fine story by Peter Watts. And look out for Larry down the road as well. Larry's got a book, The Captain's Logs, and he's opening up that one as well. So, lots to get in today's show. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. We have another meet-up with our good friend, Will Reese. I met him in that pub where we discussed and where he was having trouble with typing up and transcribing the captain's logs. And now have a little present for him. So do listen to that. Fact article comes from JJ Campanella. Next up is a fantastic story by Peter Watts called The Island, narrated by Amy H. Sturgis. Then we have good friend Larry Santoro opening up Starship so as the Captain's Logs. Next up we have a little observation deck from Cheryl Morgan. And closing remarks by my good self. This is the end of the month, so do please look at the cover of the artwork. It is stunning. To go with Peter Watts' The Island. It is designed by Chris Butler, who is a graphic designer. Took his first spin on a Wacom tablet, he says, and he was sold on the joys of digital illustration. He's still pretty new, but learning fast and anxious to start making waves. He recently was spotlighted in the June 2010 Imagine FX Magazine FX Spores feature. So, big thank you to Chris Butler. And when I send it over, I don't mean, you know, I just send them over to Skeet to kind of put the finishing touches and put all the, the artwork, you know, the, the fonts and everything on. And... I got an email off Skeet saying, you know, lately the artwork has been stunning. That's been coming over at the Starship so far, you know, like Brian Woods. Now Chris here with this, this amazing one and future ones that I've got coming up as well. Just there's some great artwork out there and Chris is a great artist. And hopefully I will try and tackle some more of Chris and get some more. But it's a good Peter Watts' story and it just fits excellent. So Chris, thank you so much. Do pop over to Chris's site. I will put links on. I Isoban on Twitter. So, a few months ago, I met up with Will Reese, who was having a hell of a time, hell of a time with the Transcribe project. And eventually he tackled it and he sorted it out. Well, as you know, the the book is now out. And I came over, I I visited him once again with a little present. Right now, I'm joined once again. Will, cheers, sir. We are at the. Is it the. Collingwood Arms again. Now we're here, how many months ago was it now? Last time since we got. Because you were in a bit of a desperate state the last time. I think time. it must have been
5: February last time. Was it? Was it that. Is it Was fe- it that long ago? It probably was. It was probably late February, early March. Well, I can of actually, and honestly, can I remember. How long's the project been going? It must have been since before Christmas. Was, was it, not? it? Well. Because I know that I didn't there's a little parcel here for you sir <laughs> not going to lie I'm quite excited <laughs> I
4: it's, um it's been quite we had it's, it's been actually See, um, there's been a, a show with Kieran on and even that you know because I haven't really spoken to Kieran about you know because we're kind of you split up you, you know you don't kind of talk about a kind of relationship like that I've, you know you kind of talk about other things uh-huh. but to talk about Starship Sofa and you haven't listened to it yet it was um, that was a, a, an emotional thing as well. And he was lovely. Do you know what I mean? But...
5: It must have felt really strange because I didn't listen to any of the early episodes, so I don't know Kieran at all from even as a personality from them. So it was must have been strange to over the read, top. Bring the, <laughs> them back. Um, and you keep
4: looking at this show. Oh, no. right. oh, let me it. Right. Well, there you go, sir. This is. A- now I don't know in the time zones or anything like that, but I'm sure you'll be the first one, apart from D and maybe Josh, that's getting the copy. As we record this, by the time it goes out on the show, all that people have had
5: it. Well, I'm sure people will have ordered it from last week. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, but it depends how quickly. Lu- <laughs> the kiddies' eyes. De- yeah. Depends how quickly Lulu gets them out, doesn't it? You
4: know what? What's the funny thing is like. Uh, if- when we when I first did it, and I sent off you know like the kind of final final PDF yeah, yeah, yeah. you know I got one off Phil saying, "You've you've missed this out, you've missed this out." So it was like a last minute kind of, "D, get that changed," because you know this, even like the the classics, the countdown at the beginning, uh-huh. that was wrong for some reason. It was like locate Starship Silver instead of like blast off. You know, I don't know where that locate word come from? but
5: I don't know how Phil still had the mental capability after Free doing sure. three shows sure. to be able to notice any mistakes certainly know that after doing one i was just like am i reading the same words over and over and over again i couldn't have spotted a mistake if it had-
4: well that, and that's quite bizarre as well because that's a, this is the first one where i've had to do editorship. Do you know where i've had to kind of where the other ones you know all the stories i kind of done there's, there's no yeah, bloody yeah, yeah. work there you know what i mean it's just yeah. like d put them even for d put them together where on this one it was actually d that mentioned he says get them all looking the same, although it's going to be like a different language, transcribing different, you know. Yeah. It's going to be different. He says, at least get them looking similar to so like the, the 70s, how you write 70s. You know, some would put yep. commas and then the S and all that had to go through. And the mistakes, young man, on <laughs> all of yours was quite, <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, you know how you just cannot see them, you know what I mean? It, oh. You just cannot see. Absolutely. And, and even when I was sending off like a paragraph to Amy... Do you know, for, like, in there, a couple of paragraphs I did. With You know, I even spelled Kieran's name, wrong. Do you I have like, I, I know how to spell that so much. Of course <laughs> you. you get it wrong?
5: Well, the thing is, one of the difficulties I had was trying to convey the spoken word so you get a feeling of the personality of you guys without just it being all grammatically absolutely perfectly correct. And well, obviously.
4: actually, it, it was nice, and it's... And I'm saying this to Kieran as well. it's It's lovely now to go through. It was hard... To begin with. Yeah. Because I had to read it. You know, I had to read, like, from cover to cover.
5: Yeah. And that went, oh, that's, you know what
4: I mean? You've got to be a brave man or woman <laughs> to tackle that. But, you know, 320. But when you're, you're just dipping into it, you know, sit on the toilet, Will, you know, dipping into it. It's, that's a lovely
5: thought sitting yeah. here looking at you now. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, cheers. Yeah, cheers. on, then, let's open her up, then. I can't tell you how excited I am.
4: I am mean, surprised how good Lulu is on like
5: Oh look at that oh. I mean it does look amazing Doesn't it? I Do particularly you... love this little bit in the corner Hugo Award nominated yes. podcast
4: Well Kieran, Kieran, if you kind of listen to next week's show Or this week's show that's how Kieran says You know normally they'll put a sticker on He says you you cheeky buggers have embedded it into the cover and <laughs>
5: You know what I mean? No 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 I mean it looks absolutely great doesn't it? See, I'm just going to be quiet now.
4: I'm just letting you just waft the pages.
5: And actually, when you sent through the PDF of the the final, final, final copy, this is it. Uh Uh-huh. You can't make any changes unless you (laughs) fill. And And I thought, oh, kind of the text came out and it was all really, it felt very blocky. But now sitting here looking at it actually on a page. It's quite bizarre, isn't it? It looks... It looks great. It's only, the, it co- it's only the content that lets it down.
2: <laughs>
5: <laughs> now, don't put yourself down. <laughs> and actually, it's quite unusual to see everybody's faces because... Oh, that's, that, have you not seen? I don't think that we've seen each other's right. pictures, which there obviously are. Or I didn't look that closely in mm-hmm. the final copy because I wanted to wait for the real thing. Did you see, have you
4: seen an, a, it's a great picture of Phil where he got hit by a car or something you know on, on his on his, his, like worst picture and I don't know which actually part of it which section we've got it at but oh what a nasty mess He's, sorry
5: Phil <laughs> his face <laughs> his wife loves <laughs> there look at that that picture
4: it's unreal isn't it
5: I hope those weren't self-inflicted following transcribing three shows. Yeah, that's why smashing his head off a wall. The poor lad. No, I mean, it looks great. And the, when you sent through the original artwork for the cover, I was like, that looks absolutely great. And I love the, just throw a couple of planets. It really does make them. It really does make them.
4: Because D mentioned straight away when I said this project, you know what I mean? He said he's got, he had this image of like rivets on a on a ship, mm. do you know what I mean? And he, he, that's all he kind of mentioned, rivets on a ship. And then when it came through, there was a couple of things. I think I said to make it like it as if it's like erratic, the kind of yep. flames from the engine, and it the planets he's thrown in. are just they're meant to be there on Do you know what I mean? Oh, it just absolutely. Looks,
5: no, I mean it looks amazing. I mean, are you happy with it? How many oh. hours must you have put in? It's. N- not as much as you. <laughs> uh, oh, i not sure about that. <laughs> well, it's,
4: it's, I think it's different from, from, you know, like being like an, an editor or a kind of producery kind of, you know what I mean, just put, pulling it all together. Yeah. So actually, you know, you can do that bit by bit, little sections. There was somewhere along the line where you had to sit down and say, I've got to get this done. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. It, you know, where I'm, I was a bit more relaxed. It, it didn't have to be, you know what I mean? I, there was at the end where I, I've got to get these, you know,
5: Full stops. Well, you say you were relaxed, but there were a lot of emails with countdowns on. <laughs> of right, if it's not done by the end of April, that's it. May is the final time. But I mean, uh, obviously, we all understood why. And yeah, there were times when at the start we were like, "Oh, transcribing, how easy that can must it be? You just sitting there listening to someone talk. You press pause every now and again. I still think it's like that. Then you just <laughs> type away because you can remember everything. And honestly, the first time i actually sat down to do any e. it was a, such a shock i went Ooh. from sitting there with one ear of my iphone and the podcast playing that i would just play and pause and play and pause right at the start to realizing that just wasn't going to work going <laughs> to Gilteran for advice downloading software off the internet installing it to um yeah i mean i, I didn't total up how many hours it took but was it, it-, it was a Pretty decent chunk of time.
4: I think it got, and I wouldn't care, you know, like you said, what well, your reminders there when I was sending all them emails, you know, you've got until there, you know, it was all kind of, I had it all regimented, it was quite easy for me to send an email, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. three lines, do I get there, there, and then I need that stage, that stage, that stage. And, that says, and I, I think I gave myself, me and Dee, a month. Yeah. And then it, it came down to the end where D said, Right, Tony, you need to, you know, you need to do this now. Everyone's done theirs. He's like put it all together. You need a kind of final, and it was me where yeah. I went. Oh yeah. dear! And I give myself a week. You know, I was a week late.
5: I was the only one that was. Late. <laughs> Everyone else was on time. Right? I was a week late. It's crazy when you sit down and look at it and you think, oh, it'll only take so long for each episode. How many episodes are there? You must have broken it down, and then all what? of a sudden you realise that it's time consuming. And I,
4: when I was mentioning Kieran as well, you know, some of them. I don't know how big yours was, but I think the the Delaney one. 20 odd
5: thousand words. I mean, I think I got off lucky. I think the, the time, of, the duration of the episode that I did was like 59 which one minutes. did you do? Did you do? I did Harlan Allison. Uh-huh. So I did, I had 59 minutes, and I noticed some of the other guys had two hours, which is obviously double the amount of time. And I just, now if I thought, it's always the same when you, go, when you approach a piece of work, isn't it? If you knew how long it was going to take you, you would have started would you, off earlier. Would you, have, would,
4: you, would you have done it? There's a question I've never asked. You. Would, you, would you have done it if you knew?
5: Not yeah, to, I not, think
4: Because that's kind of putting that book in front of your ear now is a bit of a sweetener. You, know, you kind of forget the hardship. Would you have done it
5: without? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think once you got down to it, once you got stuck in and you were listening to it, you were thinking, <laughs> I can't turn back now. Um, and I didn't have it. The only reason I would have had to turn it down was that I couldn't be bothered. Mm-hmm. And when you know everybody else is putting the effort in and, you know, taking time out of their lives. And some people are doing three, for goodness sake. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, like I said, when we met in February time, there is a real sense of everybody, you know, getting together and doing it for Starship Sofa. So, you know, you, it would be...
4: I wish I remember, you know, when you say February, I wish I remember how, when we did start. Do you know, it's obviously something them shows, there will be a time when I've said, yeah. I'm looking for transcribers, do you know, so do you think it was Christmas time, roundabout?
5: It- I'm, I mean, I'm terrible with time, but I'm fairly certain that it was on the run-up to Christmas you asked for volunteers. Right. And dished out who was going to do what. And... I'm, I'm fairly certain that after Christmas is when I really started getting stuck into it. Starting to worry. Yeah, I'm really sure I left it there for two months and I'm really sure the last two months were manically staying up late. But I'm sure it must have been around then. It must have taken us... Right. I didn't... The first deadline was the end of April The final, mm. final deadline was the end of May and Then the I'm, final, must... final, final one <laughs> Then the one, please, Your lads, one, sorry. that you missed <laughs> Would probably <laughs> be the end of June or whatever So I can't see it being I can't see it being much later than starting off late November time
4: Right I'm just planning for two, you know, volume two D? <laughs>
5: <laughs> Will, you Yeah, <laughs> I'm in
4: <laughs> Actually, I'm, I keep on mentioning it But there's Mentioning jokes, but um, there's never anything planned. So I don't know if there will be or not. Do you know what I mean? It's but you have started now. Oh no! And actually, it's funny how towards the end, and even on the last day, there was I got a, an email of someone asking profession, another professional transcriber to come over and help. You well,
5: I mean? it's, I've it's starred, great. I've put a little star it, yep. on our email. Add two <laughs> <add to> contacts. <laughs> put in the transcribing file <laughs> already. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm fairly sure everybody would well, sure want to he, give it another it, go.
4: Well, I'm, I'm guessing Phil would. God, he took three, you know what I mean? If he's
5: taken three this time, am ah, sure he can just slip one in somewhere, can't <laughs> he? <laughs> and I'm
4: sure Doug said, or it might have been Parash said something like, yes, but n- not straight away, do you
5: know what I mean? So, Absolutely, and the other thing, I guess, you know, that you would think about is... As you said in last week's podcast you know it is a way of raising revenues for you how many, how many do you think that you can get out that people will continue to buy without then i 'm a bit of a nerd <laughs> collecting things and collecting series so if something comes out annually you can guarantee there you go. <laughs> that i'll do it or that i 'll buy it but if it came out six monthly and I know you're having that debate with you know the mm. stories how, how often should you do it and how well, I, how many could you do I think weighing them up
4: the stories would probably the, the volume the sofa stories would probably if there was going to be ever one where I had to pick one to keep on doing I think that would probably be the one. Oh, undoubtedly I think I mean I'm, I haven't even planned anything like that this is just a kind of one off I mean because even we haven't went down or I haven't even decided went down the decision to get like hardback versions and you know there's one yep. PDF and there's one paperback version and that's that's all there is there so and at the minute there isn't going to be a two, you know what I mean, at the minute.
5: Well, yeah, but it only, it only takes one person to make a decision to say, oh, no. that person being you, to, for it to go again. It's quite easy, if
4: there was, how, you know, to do it. You know, I know there's the work, but it's to get that next copy, you know, to get a book out. It's a, it's a remarkably easy thing, you know what I mean? It's easy. He-
5: I never realised how a easy sh- in inverted copies <laughs> it would be to do but you're absolutely right and you know you can go and buy it and you you know you buy books from stores and you think how, different? how many thousands must they have to print for it to all be <laughs> and it turns out you not that many at all. And all you need is and 10 I, dedicated people.
4: When I ordered because I ordered like the first one, that I yeah. ordered it and it came within like three days. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? so I ordered on one night, there was a spare day, and I'm sure it was the, the next day or the day after that it was yeah. there. Yeah. Do you know what, and they came quick as anything. Do you yeah. know what I mean and it's funny that size and that one is what will Wheaton Users, yeah, you said. did I mention that on, that yeah, you mentioned of, it on all the podcast. shows and like works all blending in together? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he absolutely. picks that one and it's like it's cheap as chips for postage, but at the minute, actually, here's a little hint for your Will, if you want to get your dad one, you know, and your dad, dad yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's free postage at the minute, so as well, is you it now? I mean? And I've actually made a difference because I went and bought another three, so which would have been, I don't know, probably five for postage for three. It, it was,
5: but as you said. Great size, great typeface, easy read. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't want to sit down and blast through the whole lot.
4: Ooh.
5: But, <laughs> you know, for those of us that, you know, haven't grown up and read or heard of some of these authors sometimes, or. Had you heard of re- all of them authors? I'd, I'd heard of all of them, but I hadn't read something right. by all of them. Um, but even, you know you want to find out not only about their works but about them as people and then you well, go and look oh at, it is yeah well, and, and, and that's the that's the good thing that's the nice thing about it and these authors aren't are you a well? what are you yeah I am I'm in sales can you believe it <laughs> do another one shall I can I buy that off you I'll
4: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm buying 15 pounds uh, <laughs> oh I know because I was seeing a queue in a boat you know when I was talking to them which is the, the show that's just gone you haven't listened to yet yeah you know, it wasn't there's some of the writers I didn't you know you read maybe a short story you had no history of the background mm-hmm. of them and like I keep mentioning Harp about Trip Tree Junior The best example do you know what I mean I thought it was a man do you know what I mean led to believe it was a man then did the show found out a woman found out she shot her husband and killed herself you know what I mean yeah oh it, the, one of the best honestly read that because it's just a tool
5: well, the Harlan Ellison one that I was doing, I couldn't... St- every- time and time again, I would read it through and listen to it. I'd laugh out every time oh, some really. of the stories in there. Just absolutely brilliant. What a, a guy. He's a, he's a guy. Completely nuts um, by the sounds of things. And then when you uh, were talking on um, the Starship Sofa a f- couple of months ago about speaking to him on the phone and saying how if he ever... If you ever gave <laughs> his number to anybody else, <laughs> on, he'd hunt are. you and your Kill family down. Me, you a lot. Just absolutely brilliant
4: oh I'm glad you like it because I was actually when I brought it you know I was thinking this is a true test you know you can kind of tell oh no it's, it's, a, it's a book you know and everyone think wow I'm, I've got a you know I'm mean, in, in a book kind of thing but then do you like do you actually like it do you know what I mean? well, so I'm playing.
5: I couldn't have you couldn't looked at yourself have you seen do, yourself in print well <laughs> I've, I've seen the picture um, you know I don't there aren't any mirrors in my house that's all I'm saying um but look, yeah, I mean, you know, it was, it was exciting to, to more be part of it, and then, you know, it's always interesting to find out what it's mm-hmm. like, and we've all waited for certain authors to release their new volumes, and what's it going to be like, and especially for us transcribers, you know, it's interesting to hear what people have been doing, and the stories going on behind them, so it is really interesting to see what it looks like sat here on the page, and... It doesn't disappoint. I have very high expectations, so that should be. Well, that's where that's where I may let you down. Then. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, it looks amazing, and what can I say? Buy it. Oh, Will, you're, you're a star. Thank you very much. Hey, it's a pleasure. Always a pleasure when it's number two coming out. Mm. Would you be in for it? Would you? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Would you, you're mad crazy. <laughs> yeah, fool. No, absolutely, and I guarantee. Families and life permitting, that everybody else would as well. I don't know what. They're going to email me all for that now. I was going to say,
4: let's have a... I I'm just wondering who, just out of them there.
5: I'm sure Robin would. I'm sure Robin would. And... Phil, yeah, definitely. Phil probably would. I'm sure... Well, Craig wrote a song as well. God, no, my crazy man. As well as doing a transcribing project. <laughs> that so, come we, from we have no idea, but he bailed it around and was like, keep this secret from Tony, don't <laughs> let him find out. <laughs> we were like, okay. So, Gilteran. He would do it tomorrow. Do you know he, what I mean? He, he just, would do it tomorrow and it would only take him tomorrow. Because he's, doing he's on a his professional. B- he's <laughs> um, You know, so, I mean, Steve. Steve is mentioned in the podcast that I transcribed. Was he? There was an email from Steve that you read out in was the podcast that I, I transcribed. Read. So Steve's a long and committed fan. So, of course. you know, th- then he might. So you just... You know what I was worried about as well, mind you, One of the things, and it was D that says, I ah,
4: getting get loads of p- words on pages, was the amount of wordage. Yeah. Because I was honestly thinking, it's going to go to 700, 800. And I think Lulu only prints 740. Is there... Biggest yep. whack of a, a book size. I was thinking, gonna be screwed. Do you know what I mean? How, how many did
5: it turn out as in the end, do you remember?
4: How many transcribes? How many words, yeah. Oh it's it's about oh, I don't know how many actually words. I keep meaning ask D about it. It's three hundred and twenty pages or something like that. Right, yeah. But as you can see, there's quite a few wordage on each page there.
5: It is <laughs> it is crammed full. <laughs> <laughs> you said in your last podcast that you get your, so you your money's money. worth. You get your you, money. It's it's definitely worth it. Um Yeah. Oh I'm glad you I like it. It's great, it. Oh it's great. Well Will, thank you so much. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to be part of it.
4: Mate, just mate, see you again. You are <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> you take good care. And you. There you go. Please do support Starship over so This is the one where you know. Guess how much? we haven't sold that many of this book? So I would like yous to get your fingers in your pockets and buy this book and support Starship Sofa. Do you know, if you listen to a couple of shows and I've been interviewing on Nauts, Lightspeed, you know I haven't got a budget like Lightspeed or anything like that. You know, it's all coming out of my pocket, and this is the one way where you can kind of show your appreciation. At the minute, we have sold 28 copies of that book that didn't even cover the costs. So if you've listened to this show all along, since the very beginning, and you haven't dipped in your pockets once, now's the time. You know, you're getting something there, which is a honestly fantastic product. I'm proud of it, the bits. Help Starship Sofa, because if you don't, we won't be around. That's a fact and a half.
6: Next up is JJ Campanella. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this June 2010 science news update. I'm your host for this evening's scientific bacchanalia, Jim Campanella. Let's get started. We have lots to do in so little time. Ah, wow. I'm not even sure how to start this first story. I was simply beyond words when I found out about it. It was sent to me by Julio Flavio Morales Marquini, MD, PhD, and listener from Harvard. Julio wanted to make sure I attributed his original finding of the story to Boing Boing, but I have not seen that posting. As Julio said, the story sounds like something out of a parallel world. I thought I'd comment about that, and I figure that if this is from a parallel world, then it must be from the one in the original Star Trek episode, Mirror, Mirror, that's the one where evil Spock has the goatee and Kirk has a live in courtesan in his quarters. Sulu is a sadistic homosexual and the crew women's miniskirts got even shorter, if that's possible. So, this story is about a report in the Journal of the Indian Medical Association from December 2009. A couple of things before we go down the rabbit hole. First, the Journal of of the Indian Medical Association is actually respected, and I still can't believe that they published this. The second, the article is real. The abstract could be found in the online database Medline until last week when apparently someone with an even lower tolerance for the horrible than me pulled it out. Third, I have tried without luck to get a copy of the actual article, but I've been unsuccessful. Therefore. As horrible as the story sounds when I talk about it, it may simply be a very badly written abstract. J-I-M-A publishes exclusively in English, and that is certainly not the first language of most Indian physicians. Okay, down the rabbit hole then. The story by doctors Hussein, Rizvi, and Usmani is entitled High Frequency Ultrasound Torturer, and yes, that is what the article is about. Let me read the abstract, which will put it all in context and make you realize why even the abstract was pulled from the official listing. Oh, and any of you who know me realize I simply can't just read the abstract. It has to be done with a certain amount of aplomb. Quote, The discernible aim of torture, as everyone believes, and rightly so, is to destroy the personality Of an individual in a way that would render his compliance in the future. But to destroy a personality is easier said than done. It requires long sessions of detention and torture. The torturers risk themselves getting exposed. The human rights groups are active all around the world. Ultimately, the personality may not be destroyed much to the chagrin of the torturers, and an unexpected resilience rebounding may take place. Therefore, With the repertoire of modern knowledge, the strategy may well change in the 21st century. Discrete methods may be employed to selectively destroy areas of the brain by high-dosage and high-frequency ultrasound. It is completely a non-invasive technique that does not leave its fingerprint for painful later denials of subordination. Nevertheless, the personality will change from rightful aggression to slavish submission. The aim of this article is to put forward the theoretical perspective and co-founded projection of the darker menacing side of ultrasound technology so that future generations can be saved from the sin of omission. Unquote. That last sentence rings in my head. Sin of omission? Given the terrible English, did they mean the sin of omission of not using sonic torture or using sonic torture? It's entirely unclear to me what they're proposing. Again, is this a polemic against sonic torture? Or is it justifying sonic torture as a way to create an efficient, non-invasive technique that leaves no scars for Amnesty International to find? I am flummoxed. I did some digging and doctors Hussein Rizvi and Usmani are all respected physicians from the Department of Forensic Medicine in the Medical College of Aligarh Muslim University. They wrote an article critical of the press for supporting Lorena Bobbitt in 2004 and another paper in 2002 citing that epileptics in India were badly treated and traditionally discriminated against and proposing societal changes. And they wrote another article in 1996 on dowry cannibalism Oh, you'll love this one. The term dowry cannibalism describes a unique case where the motive for cannibalism was the non-fulfillment of a husband's dowry demands from his wife. The husband was accused by the wife of regularly using a syringe to withdraw blood from her with the intent of causing her death and drinking it. (sighs) These guys sound like they should have a TV show. Okay, much as I want to believe that these guys support sonic torture... They they simply don't sound like the kind of people who would do that. I go back to my mangled English hypothesis. Over the years, I have reviewed several scientific papers from researchers in India, and almost universally they had difficulties with English. I want to give these guys the benefit of the doubt because the alternative is just, well, sad. I've tried to contact the author of the paper to get a copy of the full article and perhaps an explanation or justification for it. Perhaps I'll have an update on this seriously weird topic next month if these guys ever deign to answer me. The next story is a bit timely because I just discussed neuropharmacologic agents with my introductory biology class yesterday. We talked about how stimulants like cocaine and amphetamines mimic neurotransmitters like acetylcholine and cause your whole nervous system to be pushed into high gear. We, of course, discuss the many drawbacks of abusing these chemicals. Well, a paper just published in the Journal of Experimental Biology this month from Dr. Ken Lekowiak's lab at the University of Calgary suggests that heavy methamphetamine use may not be all bad. If you're a snail, let me explain. In humans, methamphetamine is highly addictive, it seduces victims by increasing self esteem, sexual pleasure, and inducing euphoria. It's strange, but amphetamines also seem to enhance memory. As the authors write, quote, In addiction, we talk about the drug memory as a pathological memory. It is so potent as to not be easily forgotten, unquote. Since this pathological memory was induced by meth use, the authors wondered whether the user's regular memory was altered as well. This seems like an odd idea given the image of most meth addicts, which does not exactly bring to mind mental geniuses, but it's an interesting premise. Lekowiak and his group used pond snails to examine the question of memory enhancement and methamphetamine. Snails keep their memories about when to breathe, through their breathing tubes, in a simple three-neuron network. Now that is much simpler than the massive circuits that hold human memories. The researchers decided to find out whether a dose of meth could improve the snail's memory. Snails breathe through their skins when oxygen levels are high, but when oxygen levels start to drop, the snails extend their breathing tubes above the water's surface to supplement the supply of oxygen. Since the drug crosses the snail's skin, the team immersed the snails in deoxygenated pond water spiked with meth and watched to see how it affected their breathing. The snails stopped raising their breathing tubes at between 1 and 3 micromoles per liter of methamphetamine, After finding a dose that altered the snail's behavior, the team then began testing its effects on the mollusk's long-term memory. They trained the snails to remember to keep their breathing tubes closed when oxygen levels were low by poking them with a stick every time they tried to open them. High tech, huh? They gave the snails two training sessions separated by an hour. They did this knowing that the snails would remember this for about 24 hours. They tested the snails in deoxygenated pond water 24 hours later, and they were surprised to see that the snails seemed to have no recollection of their training. They popped their breathing tubes above the water's surface, and they got stuck with the stick again. Oddly enough, it turned out that to demonstrate that the snails did remember, the researchers had to reproduce the original conditions exactly. When they reintroduced the methamphetamine into the test water, the snails suddenly remembered to keep their breathing tubes closed. This result is interesting because it could explain why it's so hard for human addicts to kick the habit when returning to old haunts that trigger addiction memory. They then tested the snails to determine whether meth could improve their memories. First, they immersed the snails in meth-laced pond water. Then they moved them into regular deoxygenated pond water and gave them a training session that the snails would only be able to recall for a few hours. In theory, the snails should have forgotten their training 24 hours later. But would the meth improve the snail's memory so that they would remember to keep their breathing tubes closed a day later? It did. A dose of meth prior to training improved the snail's memory, allowing them to recall a lesson that should have been long forgotten. And when the team tested whether they could mask the meth memory with another memory, they found that the meth memory was much stronger and harder to mask. The conclusion to all this drug testing? Well, memories formed under the influence of meth seem to be harder to forget, possibly because the drug disrupts the mechanisms of forgetting. Since some forms of ADD treatment seem to have methamphetamine-like properties, I am wondering whether the abuse of these drugs as a study aid by some high schoolers is not justified in some weird way. Maybe those ADD medications really do help to retain memories. I will present the next story quickly. It's interesting to me, since I have young kids, but it may not come onto the radar at all of most people who don't have kids, or don't have kids that are quite as young anymore as mine. Boston College psychologist Dr. James Russell presented this finding at the May 28th Association for Psychological Science annual meeting. Russell has evidence that children less than age 5 do not recognize disgust on adult faces. Until age five, children see disgust as just another form of anger. Russell regards these new results as consistent with his controversial rejection of an influential theory that six emotions are built into humans from birth, happiness, sadness, anger, fear, surprise, and disgust, and that each of these appears as a distinctive facial expression displayed by people everywhere. Instead, Russell proposes that two core feeling dimensions, high arousal and low arousal, and positive reaction to negative reaction, provide the building blocks for emotions that get elaborated in each culture. Russell's team has previously found that a majority of children misidentify feelings expressed in adults' facial expressions. Even at age 14, a substantial minority still errs on this task, and you fans out there of the Fox TV show Lied to Me are probably finding this story fascinating at about this point. In two new experiments, Russell observed that youngsters often know the meanings of words for emotions before they can comprehend the meanings of the facial expressions that go with them. The researchers studied nearly 600 children aged 2 to 7. Kids viewed images on a computer screen of adults displaying the six basic emotional expressions. The kids' task was to assign faces to boxes at the bottom of the screen that had been designated for specific emotions. At age 2, children's accuracy was limited to putting happy faces in a happy box. Toddlers treated all negative emotional expressions as just being plain angry. Shortly after age 3, an appreciation of sad faces emerged, and about a year later, kids could accurately identify angry faces and had generally stopped putting faces with other negative expressions into the angry box. Correct designations of other facial expressions soon followed, with comprehension of disgusted faces finally appearing last. Now, other psychological researchers point out that even though young children may not be able to identify disgust on somebody's face, they can still understand the concept of disgust through their understanding of things that are gross or icky. Now, I can attest to that. My daughter certainly understands gross, And she does not hesitate to inform us of her disgust in our selections of food at most mealtimes. Onwards and upwards. Dr. Denise Chen, a psychologist at Rice University, studied 20 heterosexual couples that had been living together, either married or unmarried, for one to seven years. She presented her data on these couples at the May 29th Association for Psychological Sciences annual convention. What Chen studied was whether partners could tell what emotions the other was feeling simply through smell. Yes, as in, good morning, dear. Oh my, but you smell happy today. Chen used underarm pads to collect sweat from participants as they watched videos that induced self-reported happiness, fear, sexual arousal, or neutral feelings. Volunteers then sniffed odors from four jars containing sweat from either the person's partner or a stranger of the opposite sex. The participants tried to identify one smell that came from a person experiencing a particular feeling, such as happiness. One jar contained sweat collected during an emotional video, and the rest contained sweat collected during a quote-unquote neutral video. Overall, participants detected specific emotions from their partner's body odor, nearly two-thirds of the time. Couples that had lived together the longest did best at identifying each other's emotional odors, Chen reported. Accuracy fell to about 50% for opposite-sex strangers. Make of this odd story what you will, but it certainly brings to bear evidence for that old literary saw of smelling fear. Okay, a couple more stories before we finish up for the evening. First, Dr. Douglas Theobald, a biochemist at Brandeis University, published a statistical study in the journal Nature two weeks ago, which shows evidence that all life on Earth came from a single ancestor. That is right. We are all literally related to every other living thing on Earth from a single, original, ancient organism. This is an important result because some scientists have proposed that multiple primordial life forms could have tossed their genetic material into life's mix and created a web rather than a tree of life. For his analysis, Theobald selected 23 proteins that are found across the taxonomic spectrum but have structures that differ from one species to another. He looked at those proteins in 12 different species, four each from the bacterial, archaeal, and eukaryotic domains of life. Then he performed computer simulations to evaluate how likely the various evolutionary scenarios were to produce the observed array of proteins. He found that scenarios featuring a universal common ancestor won hands down against even the best performing multi ancestor models. Theobald says, quote, The universal common ancestor models didn't just explain the data better, they were also the simplest, so they won on both counts. Theobald's study did not address how many times life may have arisen on Earth. Life could have originated a whole bunch of times, but his model study suggests that only one of those primordial events yielded the present array of organisms living today. The final story of the evening is a bisphenol update. If you have been a regular listener over the last few months, you know that I have talked about the plastic additive bisphenol A several times and its negative effects on human and animal physiology. New laboratory studies in Japan indicate that the Fluorinated twin of BPA called bisphenol AF or BPAF may be even more potent than BPA in altering the effects of steroid hormones such as estrogens on the body. Dr. Yasuyuki Shimohagashi of Kyushu University reported April 28th in the journal Environmental Health Perspectives that BPAF, which is an ingredient of hard plastics, may be BPA's nastier, evil twin. The chemical's fluorine atoms appear to give it a strong affinity for the two best-studied estrogen receptors, estrogen receptor alpha and estrogen receptor beta. Indeed, the fluorines bind to the alpha receptor about 20 times more effectively than BPA does, and to the beta receptor almost 50 times more effectively. After binding, BPAF activates the alpha receptor just like the body's own estrogen would. The big surprise, Shiba Higashi says, was finding that despite BPAF's even stronger affinity for the beta receptor, it elicited no activity from there. It just blocked it up like a big molecular dud. In so doing, it also blocks the receptor's access to the body's own estrogen, preventing it from unlocking any of the myriad operations normally controlled via that important receptor. And here is the true horror of the story, where alpha receptors promote reproductive cancers. The beta receptors tend to inhibit cancer development and foster health in a whole range of issues. Uh, The two receptors are kind of like yin and yang. And here's the problem. Simplistically speaking, the alpha receptor is the bad guy and the beta is the good one. Generally, their actions tend to balance each other. And that's what appears to make BPAF such a double-edged sword. By increasing alpha receptor activity and then shutting down the beta receptor's countervailing functions, BPAF appears to shift endocrine action toward even greater toxicity. Let me just put it this way. In short, BPAF is is not good for people or animals. Oh, and to make you feel even better, little is known about the quantity of BPAF produced each year in the world, or even the likely human exposures. I am just speechless at this, and I hope that someone figures out something to do about this very soon. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care, Watch out for Indian doctors with sonic screwdrivers, and I hope I have inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
4: Jim, thank you so much. Been sending over some stories to Mr. J.J. Campanella as well, so look out for them soon. Next up is the main fiction, and it's The Island by Peter Watts. This came out in the collection, the Space Opera 2, edited by Gardner, Doswaz and Jonathan Strahan. It's up for a Hugo Award as well, so please, you've got until the end of July, I think around maybe the 31st of July, to put your votes in for, don't forget, Starships over as well. We're up for a Hugo Award for Best Fanzine and Peter Watts with The Island. It is narrated by our good friend Amy H. Sturgis. Amy, thank you so much for this. I'll put a link on Amy's site. You can go over there and have a look at Amy's site, what she's been up to, new books she's got out herself. So the Starship's over, and the Oral Delights is very proud to present...
1: The Island by Peter Watts. We are the cavemen. We are the ancients, the progenitors, the blue-collar steel monkeys. We spin your webs and build your magic gateways, thread each needle's eye at 60,000 kilometers a second. We never stop. We never even dare to slow down, lest the light of your coming turn us to plasma. All for you. All so you can step from star to star without dirtying your feet in these endless, empty wastes between. Is it really too much to ask? That you might talk to us now and then? I know about evolution and engineering. I know how much you've changed. I've seen these portals give birth to gods and demons and things we can't begin to comprehend. Things I can't believe were ever human. Alien hitchhikers, maybe, riding the rails we've left behind. Alien conquerors. Exterminators, perhaps but I've also seen those gates stay dark and empty until they faded from view. We've inferred diebacks and dark ages, civilizations burned to the ground and others rising from their ashes. And sometimes, afterwards, the things that come out look a little like the ships we might have built back in the day. They speak to each other, radio, laser, carrier neutrinos, and sometimes their voices sound something like ours. There was a time we dared to hope that they really were like us, that the circle had come round again and closed on beings we could talk to. I've lost count of the times we tried to break the ice. I've lost count of the eons since we gave up. All these iterations fading behind us. All these hybrids and posthumans and immortals, gods and catatonic cavemen trapped in magical chariots they can't begin to understand, and not one of them ever pointed a calm laser in our direction to say, Hey, how's it going? Or guess what? We cured Damascus disease, or even Thanks, guys, keep up the good work. We're not some fucking cargo cult. We're the backbone of your goddamn empire. You wouldn't even be out here if it weren't for us. And you're our children. Whatever you've become, you were once like this, like me. I believed in you once. There was a time long ago when I believed in this mission with all my heart. Why have you forsaken us? And so... Another build begins. This time I open my eyes to a familiar face I've never seen before. Only a boy, early twenties perhaps, physiologically. His face is a little lopsided, the cheekbone flatter on the left than the right. His ears are too big. He looks almost natural. I haven't spoken for millennia. My voice comes out a whisper. Who are you? Not what I'm supposed to ask, I know. Not the first question anyone on Areaphora asks, after coming back. I'm yours, he says. And just like that, I'm a mother. I want to let it sink in, but he doesn't give me the chance. You weren't scheduled, but Chimp wants extra hands on deck. Next build's got a situation. So the chimp is still in control. The chimp is always in control. The mission goes on. Situation, I ask. Contact scenario, maybe. I wonder when he was born. I wonder if he ever wondered about me before now. He doesn't tell me. He only says, "Sun up ahead, half light year. Chimp thinks maybe it's talking to us, anyhow. My son shrugs. No rush, lots of time. I nod, but he hesitates. He's waiting for the question, but I already see a kind of answer in his face. Our reinforcements were supposed to be pristine, built from perfect genes buried deep within Ares' iron basalt mantle, safe from the sleeting blue shift. And yet this boy has flaws. I see the damage in his face. I see those tiny flipped base pairs resonating up from the microscopic and bending him just a little off-kilter. He looks like he grew up on the planet. He looks born of parents who spent their whole lives hammered by raw sunlight. How far out must we be by now, if even our own perfect building blocks have decayed so? How long has it taken us? How long have I been dead? How long? It's the first thing everyone asks. After all this time, I don't want to know. He's alone at the tack tank when I arrive on the bridge, his eyes full of icons and trajectories. Perhaps I see a little of me in there, too. I didn't get your name, I say, although I've looked it up on the manifest. You've barely been introduced, and already I'm lying to him. Dicks? He keeps his eyes on the tank. He's over 10,000 years old. Alive for maybe 20 of them? I wonder how much he knows who he's met during those sparse decades. Does he know Ishmael? Or Connie? Does he know if Sanchez got over his brush with immortality? I wonder, but I don't ask. There are rules. I look around. We're it? Dick nods. For now. Bring back more if we need them, but... His voice trails off. Yes? Nothing. I join him at the tank. Diaphanous veils hang within, like frozen, color-coded smoke. We're on the edge of a molecular dust cloud. Warm, semi-organic. Lots of raw materials. Formaldehyde, ethylene glycol, the usual prebiotics. A good spot for a quick build. A red dwarf glowers dimly at the center of the tank. The chimp has named it DHF-428, for reasons I've long since forgotten to care about. So, fill me in, I say. His glance is impatient, even irritated. You too? What do you mean? Like the others, on the other builds. Chimp can just squirt the specs, but they want to talk all the time. Shit, his link's still active. He's online. I force a smile. Just a, a cultural tradition, I guess. We talk about a lot of things. It helps us reconnect after being down for so long. But it's slow, Dix complains. He doesn't know. Why doesn't he know? We've got half a light year, I point out. There's some rush? The corner of his mouth twitches. Bonds went out on schedule. On a queue, a cluster of violet pinpricks sparkle in the tank, five trillion clicks ahead of us. Still sucking dust mostly, but got lucky with a couple big asteroids and the refineries came online early. First components already extruded. Then Shemp sees these fluctuations in solar output. Mainly infra, but extends into visible. The tank blinks at us. The dwarf goes into time-lapse. Sure enough, it's flickering. Non-random, I take it? Dixon climbs his head a little to the side, not quite nodding. Plot the time series. I've never been able to break the habit of raising my voice just a bit when addressing the chimp. Obediently, (laughs) obediently, now there's a laugh and a half, the A.I. wipes the spaceship and replaces it with a string of luminous dots jammed together at one end. Stretched thin at the other, the spaces between expanding from left to right. Repeating sequence, Dix tells me. Lips don't change, but spacing's a log-linear increase, cycling every ninety-two point five corsets. Each cycle starts at thirteen point two clicks per corset. Degrades over time. No chance this could be natural. A little black hole wobbling around in the center of the star, maybe. Dix shakes his head, or something like that. A diagonal dip of the chin that somehow conveys the negative. But way too simple to contain much info. Not like an actual conversation. More, well, a shout. He's partly right. There may not be much information, but there's enough. We're here. We're smart. We're powerful enough to hook a whole damn star up to a dimmer switch. Maybe not such a good spot for a build after all. I purse my lips. The sun's hailing us. That's what you're saying. Maybe hailing someone, but too simple for a Rosetta signal. It's not an archive, can't self extract. Not a bonferrani or Fibonacci seek, not pie. Not even a multiplication table. Nothing to base a pigeon on. Still, an intelligent signal. Need more info, Dick says. Proving himself master of the blindingly obvious. I nod. The Vons. Uh, what about them? We set up an array. Use a bunch of bad eyes to fake a good one. It'd be faster than hygiene an observatory from this end, or retooling one of the on-site factories. His eyes go wide. For a moment, he almost looks frightened for some reason. But the moment passes and he does that weird headshake thing again. Bleed too many resources away from the build, wouldn't it? It would, the chimp agrees. I suppress a snort. If you're so worried about meeting our construction benchmarks, chimp, factor in the potential risk posed by an intelligence powerful enough to control the energy output of an entire sun. I can't, it admits. I don't have enough information. You don't have any information about something that could probably stop this mission dead in its tracks if it wanted to. So maybe we should get some. Okay, Vaughn's reassigned. Confirmation glows from a convenient bulkhead, a complex sequence of dance instructions fired into the void. Six months from now, a hundred self-replicating robots will waltz into a makeshift surveillance grid. Four months after that, we might have something more than vacuum to debate in. Dick's eyes me as though I'd just cast some kind of magic spell. It may run the ship, I tell him, but it's pretty fucking stupid. Sometimes you just got to spell things out. He looks vaguely affronted, but there's no mistaking the surprise beneath. He didn't know that. He didn't know. Who the hell's been raising him all this time? Whose problem is this? Not mine. Call me in ten months, I say. I'm going back to bed. It's as though he never left. I climb back into the bridge, and there he is, staring into tack. DHF428 fills the tank, a swollen red orb that turns my son's face into a devil mask. He spares me the briefest glance, eyes wide, fingers twitching as if electrified. Vaughn's don't see it. I'm still a bit groggy from the thaw. See what the sequence! His voice borders on panic. He sways back and forth, shifting his weight from foot to foot. Show me. Tack splits down the middle. Cloned dwarves burn before me now, each perhaps twice the size of my fist. On the left, an Eris's eye view. DHF428 stutters as it did before, as it presumably has these past ten months. On the right, a compound eye composite, an interferometry grid built by a myriad precisely spaced fawns, the rudimentary eyes layered and parallaxed into something approaching high resolution. Contrast on both sides has been conveniently cranked up to highlight the dwarf's endless winking from merely human eyes. Except it's only winking from the left side of the display. On the right, four to eight glowers steady as a standard candle. Chimp, any chance the grid just isn't sensitive enough to see the fluctuations? No. Huh. I try to think of some reason it would lie about this. Doesn't make sense, my son complains. It does, I murmur, if it's not the sun that's flickering. But is flickering. He sucks his teeth. You can see it... Wait, you mean something behind the Vons? Between... between them and us? Hmm. Some kind of filter. Dix relaxes a bit. Wouldn't we've seen it, though? Wouldn't the Vons have hit it going down? I put my voice back into chimp calm mode. What's the current field of view for Eris' forward scope? Eighteen mics, the chimp reports. At four to eights range, the cone is three point three four light secs across. Increase to a hundred light secs. The Ares eye partition swells, obliterating the dissenting viewpoint. For a moment, the sun fills the tank again, paints the whole bridge crimson. Then it dwindles, as if devoured from within. I notice some fuzz in the display. Can you clear that noise? It's not noise the chimp reports. It's dust and molecular gas. I blink. What's the density? Estimated 100,000 atoms per cubic meter. Two orders of magnitude too high, even for a nebula. Why so heavy? Surely we'd have detected any gravity well strong enough to keep that much material in the neighborhood. I don't know, the chimp says. I get the queasy feeling that I might. Set field of view to 500 light sex, Peak false color at near infrared. Space grows ominously murky in the tank. The tiny sun at its center, thumbnail size now, glows with increased brilliance, an incandescent pearl in muddy water. A thousand light sex, I command. There, Dix whispers. Real space reclaims the edges of the tank, dark, clear, pristine. four to eight nestles at the heart of a dim spherical shroud. You find those, sometimes, discarded cast offs from companion stars whose convulsions spew gas and rads across light years. But 428 to eight is no Nova remnant. It's a red dwarf, placid, middle aged, unremarkable except for the fact that it sets dead center of a tenuous gas bubble 1.4 AUs across, and for the fact that this bubble does not attenuate or diffuse or fade gradually into that good night. No, unless there is something seriously wrong with the display, this small spherical nebula extends about 350 light sects from its primary and then just stops, It's boundary far more knife-edged than nature has any right to be. For the first time in millennia, I miss my cortical pipe. It takes forever to saccade search terms into the keyboard in my head to get the answers I already know. Numbers come back. Chimp, I want false color peaks at 335, 500, and 800 nanometers. The shroud, around 428, lights up like a dragonfly's wing, like an iridescent soap bubble. It's beautiful, whispers my awestruck son. It's photosynthetic, I tell him. Pheophyton and Eumelanin, according to Spectro, There are even hints of some kind of lead-based Kuiper pigment soaking up X-rays in the picometer range. Chimp hypothesizes something called a chromatophore, branching cells with little aliquots of pigment inside, like particles of charcoal dust. Keep those particles clumped together and the cells effectively transparent. Spread them out through the cytoplasm, and the whole structure darkens, dims whatever EM passes through from behind. Apparently, there were animals back on Earth with cells like that. They could change color, pattern match to their background, all sorts of things. So there's a membrane of... of living tissue around that star, I say, trying to wrap my head around the concept. A... a meat balloon. Around the whole damn star. Yes, the chimp says. But that... Jesus, how thick would it be? No more than two millimeters, probably less. How so? If it was much thicker, it would be more obvious in the visible spectrum. It would have had a detectable effect on the von Neumanns when they hit it. That's assuming that its cells, I guess, are like ours. The pigments are familiar. The rest might be too... It can't be too familiar. Nothing like a conventional gene would last two seconds in that environment. Not to mention whatever miracle solvent that thing must use as antifreeze. Okay, let's be conservative, then. Say, mean thickness of a millimeter. Assume a density of water at STP. 1.4 yodograms. Dix and the chimp reply, almost in unison. That's, uh... Half the mass of mercury... The chimp adds helpfully. I whistle through my teeth. And that's one organism? I don't know yet. It's got organic pigments. Fuck, it's talking. It's intelligent. Most cyclic emanations from living sources are simple biorhythms, the chimp points out. Not intelligent signals. I ignore it and turn to Dix. Assume it's a signal. He frowns. Chimp says... "'Assume. Use your imagination.' "'I'm not getting through to him. He looks nervous. "'He looks like that a lot, I realize. "'If someone were signaling you, I say, then what would you do?' "'Signal. Confusion on that face and a fuzzy circuit closing somewhere. "'Back. My son is an idiot.' And if the incoming signal takes the form of systematic changes in light intensity, how? Use the BI lasers, alternated to pulse between 700 and 3,000 nanometers. Can boost an interlaced signal into the exowatt range without compromising our fenders. Gives over 1,000 watts per square meter after diffraction. Way past detection threshold for anything that can sense thermal output from a red dwarf. And content doesn't matter if it's just a shout. Shout back. Test for echo. Okay, so my son is an idiot savant. And he still looks unhappy. But Chimp, he says no real information there, right? And that whole other set of misgivings edges to the fore again. He. Dix takes my silence for amnesia. Too simple, remember? Remember? Simple click train. I shake my head. There's more information in that signal than the chimp can imagine. There are so many things the chimp doesn't know. And the last thing I need is for this... This child to start deferring to it. To start looking to it as an equal or, God forbid, a mentor. No, it's smart enough to steer us between the stars. Smart enough to calculate million-digit primes in the blink of an eye. Even smart enough for a little crude improvisation should the crew go too far off mission. Not smart enough to know a distress call when it sees one. It's a deceleration curve, I tell them both. It keeps slowing down, over and over again. That's the message. Stop. 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 And I think it's meant for no one but us. We shout back, no reason not to, and now we die again, because what's the point of staying up late? Whether or not this vast entity harbors real intelligence, our Echo won't reach it for ten million corsecs, another seven million at the earliest, before we receive any reply it might send. Might as well hit the crypt in the meantime, shut down all desires and misgivings, conserve whatever life I have left for moments that matter. Remove myself from this sparse tactical intelligence, from this wet eyed pup watching me as though I'm some kind of sorcerer about to vanish in a puff of smoke. He opens his mouth to speak, and I turn away and hurry down to oblivion. But I set my alarm to wake up alone. I linger in the coffin for a while, grateful for small and ancient victories. The chimp's dead, blackened eye gazes down from the ceiling. and all these millions of years, nobody's scrubbed off the carbon scoring. It's a trophy of sorts, a memento from the early incendiary days of our great struggle. There's still something comforting, I guess, about that blind, endless stare I'm reluctant to venture out where the chimp's nerves have not been so thoroughly cauterized. Childish, I know. The damn thing already knows I'm up. It may be blind, deaf, and impotent in here, but there's no way to mask the power the crypt sucks in during a fall. And it's not as though a bunch of club-wielding teleops are waiting to pounce on me the moment I step outside. These are the days of detente, after all. The struggle continues, but the war has gone cold. We just go through the motions now, rattling our chains like an old married multiplet resigned to hating each other till the end of time. After all the moves and counter-moves, the truth is, we need each other. So I wash the rotten egg stench from my hair and step into airy silent cathedral hallways. Sure enough, the enemy waits in the darkness, turns the lights on as I approach, shuts them off behind me, but it does not break the silence. Dix. A strange one, that. Not that you'd expect anyone born and raised on Areophora to be an archetype of mental health, but Dix doesn't even know what side he's on. He doesn't even seem to know he has to choose a side. It's almost as though he read the original mission statements and took them seriously, believed in the literal truth of the ancient scrolls, Mammals and machinery working together across the ages to explore the universe, united, strong, forward the frontier. Raw. Whoever raised him didn't do a great job. Not that I blame them. It can't have been much fun having a child underfoot during a build, and none of us were selected for our parenting skills. Even if bots changed the diapers and VR handled the info dumps, Socializing a toddler couldn't have been anyone's idea of a good time. I'd have probably just chucked the little bastard out in airlock. But even I would have brought him up to speed. Something changed while I was away. Maybe the wars heated up again, entered some new phase. That twitchy kid is out of the loop for a reason. I wonder what it is. I wonder if I care. I arrive at my suite... "'Treat myself to a gratuitous meal. "'Jill off. Three hours after coming back to life, "'I'm relaxing in the starbow Commons. "'Chimp? "'You're up early,' it says at last. "'And I am. "'Our answering shout hasn't even arrived at its destination yet. "'No real chance of new data for another two months at least. "'Show me the forward feeds,' I command. DHF-428 blinks at me from the center of the lounge. Stop. 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 Maybe. Or maybe the chimps right. Maybe it's pure physiology. Maybe this endless cycle carries no more intelligence than the beating of a heart. But there's a pattern inside the pattern. Some kind of flicker in the blink. It makes my brain itch. Slow the time series. I command, by a hundred. It is a blink. 428's disk isn't darkening uniformly. It's eclipsing, as though a great eyelid were being drawn across the surface of the sun from right to left. By a thousand. Chromatophores, the chimp called them. But they're not all opening and closing at once. The darkness moves across the membrane in waves. A word pops into my head. Latency. Chimp, those waves of pigment, how fast are they moving? About 59,000 kilometers per second. The speed of a passing thought. And if this thing does think, it'll have logic gates, synapses. It's going to be a net of some kind. And if the net's big enough, there's an I in the middle of it. Just like me, just like dicks, just like the chimp. Which is why I educated myself on the subject back in the early tumultuous days of our relationship. Know your enemy and all that. The thing about I is it only exists within a tenth of a second of all its parts. When we get spread too thin. When someone splits your brain down the middle, say. Chops the fat pipes so the halves have to talk the long way round. When the neuro...
6: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: architecture diffuses past some critical point and signals take just that much longer to pass from A to B, the system, well, decoheres. The two sides of your brain become different people with different tastes different agendas, different senses of themselves. I shatters into we. It's not just a human rule or a mammal rule or even an earthly one. It's a rule for any circuit that processes information, and it applies as much to the things we've yet to meet as it did to those we left behind. Fifty-nine thousand kilometers per second, the chimp says. How far can the signal move through that membrane in a tenth of a corset? How thinly does I spread itself across the heavens? The flesh is huge. The flesh is inconceivable. But the spirit... The spirit is... Shit. Chimp, assuming the mean neuron density of a human brain, what's the synapse count on a circular sheet of neurons one millimeter thick with a diameter of 5,892 kilometers? Two times ten to the 27th? I saccade the database for some perspective on a mind stretched across 30 million square kilometers, the equivalent of two quadrillion human brains. Of course, whatever this thing uses for neurons have to be packed a lot less tightly than ours. We can see through them, after all. Let's be super conservative, say it's only got a thousandth the computational density of a human brain. That's... Okay, let's say it's only got a ten-thousandth the synaptic density. That's still a hundred-thousandth, the merest mist of thinking meat. Any more conservative, and I'd hypothesize it right out of existence. Still, twenty billion human brains. Twenty billion. I don't know how to feel about that. This is no mere alien. But... I'm not quite ready to believe in gods. I round the corner and run smack into dips, standing like a golem in the middle of my living room. I jump about a meter straight up. What the hell are you doing here? He seems surprised by my reaction. Wanted to... talk, he says after a moment. You never come into someone's home uninvited. He retreats a step stammers wanted wanted to talk and you do that in public on the bridge or in the commons or for that matter you could just calm me he hesitates said you wanted face to face you said cultural tradition i did at that but not here this is my place these are my private quarters "'The lack of locks on these doors is a safety protocol, "'not an invitation to walk into my home and lie in wait "'and stand there like part of the fucking furniture. "'Why are you even up?' I snarl. "'We're not even supposed to come online for another two months. "'Ask Chimp to get me up when you did.' "'That fucking machine.' "'Why are you up?' he asks, not leaving.' I sigh, defeated, and fall into a convenient pseudopod. I just wanted to go over the preliminary data. The implicit alone should be obvious. Anything? Evidently, it isn't. I decide to play along for a while. Looks like we're talking to an... an island. Almost 6,000 clicks across. That's the thinking part, anyway. The surrounding membrane's pretty much empty. I mean, it's all alive. It all photosynthesizes or something like that. It eats, I guess. Not sure what. Molecular cloud, Dick says. Organic compounds everywhere. Plus, it's concentrating stuff inside the envelope. I shrug. Point is, there's a size limit for the brain, but it's huge. It's unlikely, he murmurs almost to himself. I turn to look at him. The pseudopod reshapes itself around me. What do you mean? Island's 28 million square kilometers? Whole sphere, 7 quintillion. Island just happens to be between us and 428. That's 1 in 50 billion odds. Go on. He can't. Uh, just just unlikely. I close my eyes. How can you be smart enough to run those numbers in your head without missing a beat, and stupid enough to miss the obvious conclusion? That panicked slaughterhouse look again. Don't. I'm not. It is unlikely. It's astronomically unlikely that we just happen to be aiming at the one intelligent spot on a sphere one and a half AUs across, which means... He says nothing the perplexity in his face mocks me i want to punch it but finally the lights flicker on there's uh more than one island oh a lot of islands this creature is part of the crew my life will almost certainly depend on him someday that is a very scary thought i try to set it aside for the moment. There's probably a whole population of the things, sprinkled through the membrane like... like cysts, I guess. The chimp doesn't know how many, but we're only picking up this one so far, so they might be pretty sparse. There's a different kind of frown on his face now. Why chimp? What do you mean? Why call him chimp? We call it THE chimp. Because the first step to humanizing something is to give it a name? Looked it up. Short for chimpanzee. Stupid animal. Actually, I think chimps were supposed to be pretty smart, I remember. Not like us. Couldn't even talk. Chimp can talk. Way smarter than those things. That name, it's an insult. What do you care? He just looks at me. I spread my hands. Okay, it's not a chimp. We just call it that because it's got roughly the same synapse count. So, gave him a small brain, then complained that he's stupid all the time. My patience is just about drained. Do you have a point, or are you just blowing CO2 and why not make him smarter? Because you can never predict the behavior of a system more complex than you. And if you want a project to stay on track after you're gone, you don't hand the reins to anything that's guaranteed to develop its own agenda. Sweet smoking Jesus, you'd think someone would have told him about Ashby's law. So they lobotomized him, Dick says after a moment. No, they didn't turn it stupid. They built it stupid. Maybe smarter than you think. You're so much smarter, got your agenda... How come he's still in control? Don't flatter yourself, I say. What? I let a grim smile peek through. You're only following orders from a bunch of other systems way more complex than you are. You've got to hand it to them, too. Dead for stellar lifetimes, and those damn project admins are still pulling the strings. I don't... I'm following... I'm sorry, dear. I smile sweetly at my idiot offspring. I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to the thing that's making all those sounds come out of your mouth. Dick's turns whiter than my panties. I drop all pretense. What were you thinking, chimp? That you could send this sock puppet to invade my home and I wouldn't notice? Not... I'm not... It's me, Dick stammers. Me talking. It's coaching you. Do you even know what lobotomized means? I shake my head, disgusted. You think I've forgotten how the interface works just because we all burned ours out? A caricature of surprise begins to form on his face. Oh, don't even fucking try. You've been up for other builds. There's no way you couldn't have known. And you know we shut down our domestic links, too. And there's nothing your lord and master can do about that because it needs us and so we have reached what you might call an accommodation i am not shouting my tone is icy but my voice is dead level and yet dick's almost cringes before me there is an opportunity here i realize i thaw my voice a little i speak gently you can do that too you know burn out your link I'll even let you come back here afterwards if you still want to, just to talk. But not with that thing in your head. There is panic in his face, and against all expectation, it almost breaks my heart. Can't, he pleads. How I learn things, how I train, the mission. I honestly don't know which of them is speaking, so I answer them both. There is more than one way to carry out the mission. We have more than enough time to try them all. Dix is welcome to come back, when he's alone. They take a step towards me. Another. One hand, twitching, rises from their side as if to reach out, and there's something on that lopsided face that I can't quite recognize. But I'm your son, they say. I don't even dignify it with a denial. Get out of my home. A human periscope. The Trojan Dicks. That's a new one. The chimps never tried such overt infiltration while we were up and about before. Usually it waits until we're all undead before invading our territories. I imagine custom-made drones never seen by human eyes, cobbled together during the long, dark eons between builds. I see them sniffing through drawers and peeking behind mirrors, strafing the bulkheads with x-rays and ultrasound, patiently searching Areophora's catacombs, millimeter by endless millimeter, for whatever secret messages we might be sending each other down through time. There's no proof to speak of. We've left tripwires and telltales to alert us to intrusion after the fact, but there's never been any evidence they've been disturbed. Means nothing, of course, the chimp may be stupid, but it's also cunning, and a million years is more than enough time to iterate through every possibility using simple-minded brute force. Document every mote. Commit your unspeakable acts. Put everything back the way it was afterwards. We're too smart to risk talking across the eons. No encrypted strategies, no long-distance love letters, No chatty postcards showing ancient vistas long lost in the red shift. We keep all that in our heads, where the enemy will never find it. The unspoken rule is that we do not speak unless it is face to face. Endless, idiotic games. Sometimes I almost forget what we're squabbling over. It seems so trivial now, with an immortal in my sights. Maybe that means nothing to you. Immortality must be ancient news from whatever peaks you've ascended by now, but I can't even imagine it, although I've outlived worlds. All I have are moments, two or three hundred years, to ration across the lifespan of a universe. I could bear witness to any point in time, or any hundred thousand if I slice my life thinly enough, but I will never see everything. I will never see even a fraction. My life will end. I have to choose. When you come to fully appreciate the deal you've made, ten or fifteen builds out, when the trade-off leaves the realm of mere knowledge and sinks deep as cancer into your bones, you become a miser. You can't help it. You ration out your waking moments to the barest minimum, just enough to manage the build, to plan your latest counter-move against the chimp. Just enough, if you haven't yet moved beyond the need for human contact, for sex and snuggles and a bit of warm mammalian comfort against the endless dark. And then you hurry back to the crypt to hoard the remains of a human lifespan against the unwinding of the cosmos. There's been time for education. Time for a hundred postgraduate degrees, thanks to the best caveman learning tech. I've never bothered. Why burn down my tiny candle for a litany of mere fact? Fritter away my precious, endless, finite life. Only a fool would trade book learning for a ringside view of the Cassiopeia remnant, even if you do need false color enhancement to see the fucking thing. Now, though, now I want to know. This creature crying out across the gulf, massive as a moon, wide as a solar system, tenuous and fragile as an insect's wing. I'd gladly cash in some of my life to learn its secrets. How does it work? How can it even live here at the edge of absolute zero, much less think? What vast, unfathomable intellect must it possess to see us coming from over half a light-year away, to deduce the nature of our eyes and our instruments, To send a signal we can even detect, much less understand. And what happens when we punch through it at a fifth the speed of light? I call up the latest findings on my way to bed, and the answer hasn't changed. Not much. The damn thing's already full of holes. Comets. Asteroids. The usual protoplanetary junk careens through this system as it does through every other. Infra picks up diffuse pockets of slow outgassing here and there around the perimeter where the soft, vaporous vacuum of the interior bleeds into the harder stuff outside. Even if we were going to tear through the dead center of the thinking part, I can't imagine this vast creature feeling so much as a pinprick. At the speed we're going, we'd be through and gone far too fast to overcome even the feeble inertia of a millimeter membrane. And yet... Stop. 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 It's not us, of course. It's what we're building. The birth of a gate is a violent, painful thing. A space-time rape that puts out almost as much gamma and X as a microquasar. Any meat within the white zone turns to ash in an instant, shielded or not. It's why we never slow down to take pictures. One of the reasons, anyway. We can't stop, of course. Even changing course isn't an option except by the barest increments. Airy soars like an eagle between the stars, but she steers like a pig on the short haul. Tweak our heading by even a tenth of a degree, and you've got some serious damage at twenty percent light speed. Half a degree would tear us apart. The ship might torque onto the new heading, but the collapsed mass in her belly would keep right on going, Rip through all this surrounding superstructure without even feeling it. Even tame singularities get set in their ways. They do not take well to change. We resurrect again, and the island has changed its tune. It gave up asking us to stop, stop, stop the moment our laser hit its leading edge. Now it's saying something else entirely— Dark hyphens flow across its skin, arrows of pigment converging towards some off stage focus like spokes pointing towards the hub of a wheel. The bullseye itself is off stage and implicit, far removed from 428's bright backdrop. But it's easy enough to extrapolate to the point of convergence six light sex to starboard. There's something else, too a shadow, roughly circular, moving along one of the spokes like a bead running along a stream. It, too, migrates to starboard, falls off the edge of the island's makeshift display, is endlessly reborn at the same initial coordinates to repeat its journey. Those coordinates, exactly where our current trajectory will punch through the membrane in another four months. A squinting god would be able to see the nets and girders of ongoing construction on the other side, the great piecemeal torus of the Hawking Hoop already taking shape. The message is so obvious that even Dick sees it. Wants us to move the gate. And there is something like confusion in his voice. But how's it know we're building one? The Vons punctured it en route, the chimp points out. It could have sensed that. It has photopigments. It can probably see... Probably sees better than we do, I say. Even something as simple as a pinhole camera gets high-res fast if you stipple a bunch of them across 30 million square kilometers. But Dix scrunches his face, unconvinced. So, sees a bunch of Vons bumping around, loose parts, not that much even assembled yet. How's it know we're building something hot? Because it's very, very smart, you stupid child. Is it so hard to believe that this... this organism seems far too limiting a word? Can just imagine how those half-built pieces fit together? Glance at our sticks and stones and see exactly where this is going? Maybe it's not the first gate it's seen, Dix suggests. Think there's maybe another gate out here? I shake my head. We'd have seen the lensing artifacts by now. You ever run into anyone before? No. We have always been alone through all these epochs. We have only ever run away. And then always from our own children. I crunch some numbers. 182 days to insemination. If we move now, we've only got to tweak our bearing by a few mics to redirect the new coordinates. Well within the green. Angles get dicey the longer we wait, of course. We can't do that, the chimp says. We would miss the gate by two million kilometers. Move the gate. Move the whole damn site. Move the refineries. Move the factories. Move the damn rocks. A couple hundred meters a second would be more than fast enough if we send the order now. We don't even have to suspend construction. We can keep building on the fly. Every one of those vectors widens the nested confidence limits of the build. It would increase the risk of error beyond allowable margins for no payoff. And what about the fact that there's an intelligent being in our path? I'm already allowing for the potential presence of intelligent alien life. Okay, first off, there's nothing potential about it. It's right fucking there. And on our current heading, we run the damn thing over. We're staying clear of all planetary bodies in Goldilocks orbits. We've seen no local evidence of spacefaring technology. The current location of the build meets all conservation criteria. That's because the people who drew up your criteria never anticipated a live Dyson sphere. But I'm wasting my breath, and I know it. The chimp can run its equations a million times, but if there's nowhere to put the variable, what can it do? There was a time, back before things turned ugly, when we had clearance to reprogram those parameters, before we discovered that one of the things the admins had anticipated was mutiny. I try another tack. Consider the threat potential. There's no evidence of any... Look at the synapse estimate. That thing's got Order of Mag more processing power than the whole civilization that sent us out here. You think something can be that smart, live that long, without learning how to defend itself? We're assuming it's asking us to move the gate. What if that's not a request? What if it's just giving us the chance to back off before it takes matters into its own hands? Doesn't have hands, Dick says from the other side of the tank. And he's not even being flippant. He's just being so stupid I want to bash his face in. I try to keep my voice level. Maybe it doesn't need any. What could it do? Blink us to death? No weapons. Doesn't even control the whole membrane. Signal propagation's too slow. We don't know. That's my point. We haven't even tried to find out. We're a goddamn road crew. Our on-site presence is a bunch of construction bonds press-ganged into scientific research. We can figure out some basic physical parameters, but we don't know how this thing thinks, what kind of natural defenses it might have. What do you need to find out? The chimp asks, the very voice of calm reason. We can't find out. I want to scream. We're stuck with what we've got. By the time the on-site Vons could build what we need, we're already past the point of no return. You stupid fucking machine! We're on a track to kill a being smarter than all of human history, and you can't even be bothered to move our highway to the vacant lot next door. But of course, if I say that, the island's chances of survival go from low to zero. So I grasp at the only straw that remains. Maybe the data we've got in hand is enough. If acquisition is off the table, maybe analysis will do. I need time, I say. Of course, the chimp tells me. Take all the time you need. The chimp is not content to kill this creature. The chimp has to spit on it as well. Under the pretense of assisting in my research, it tries to deconstruct the island break it apart, and force it to conform to grubby, earthbound precedents. It tells me about earthly bacteria that thrived at 1.5 million rads and laughed at hard vacuum. It shows me pictures of unkillable little tardigrades that could curl up and snooze on the edge of absolute zero, felt equally at home in deep ocean trenches and deeper space. Given time, opportunity, a boot off the planet... Who knows how far those cute little invertebrates might have gone? Might they have survived the very death of the homeworld? Clung together? Grown somehow colonial? What utter bullshit? I learn what I can. I study the alchemy by which photosynthesis transforms light and gas and electrons into living tissue. I learn the physics of the solar wind that blows the bubble taut. Calculate lower metabolic limits for a life form that filters organics from the ether. I marvel at the speed of this creature's thoughts, almost as fast as airy flies, orders of mag faster than any mammalian nerve impulse. Some kind of organic superconductor, perhaps, something that passes chilled electrons almost resistance-free out here in the freezing void. I acquaint myself with phenotypic plasticity and sloppy fitness, that fortuitous evolutionary soft focus that lets species exist in alien environments and express novel traits they never needed at home. Perhaps this is how a life form with no natural enemies could acquire teeth and claws and the willingness to use them. The island's life hinges on its ability to kill us. I have to find something that makes it a threat." But all I uncover is a growing suspicion that I am doomed to fail. For violence, I begin to see, is a planetary phenomenon. Planets are the abusive parents of evolution. Their very surfaces promote warfare, concentrate resources into dense, defensible patches that can be fought over. Gravity forces you to squander energy on vascular systems and skeletal support. Stand endless watch against an endless, sadistic campaign to squash you flat. Take one wrong step off a perch too high, and all your pricey architecture shatters in an instant. And even if you beat those odds, cobble together some lumbering armored chassis to withstand the slow crawl onto land... How long before the world draws in some asteroid or comet to crash down from the heavens and reset your clock to zero? Is it any wonder we grew up believing life was a struggle, that zero-sum was God's own law, and the future belonged to those who crushed the competition? The rules are so different out here. Most of space is tranquil No dial or seasonal cycles, no ice ages or global tropics, no wild pendulum swings between hot and cold, calm and tempestuous. Life's precursors abound on comets, clinging to asteroids, suffusing nebulae a hundred light-years across. Molecular clouds glow with organic chemistry and life-giving radiation. Their vast, dusty wings grow warm with infrared, Filter out the hard stuff, give rise to stellar nurseries that only some stunted refugee from the bottom of a gravity well could ever call lethal. Darwin's an abstraction here, an irrelevant curiosity. This island puts the lie to everything we were ever told about the machinery of life. Sun powered, perfectly adapted, immortal, it won no struggle for survival. Where are the predators? The competitors? the parasites all of life around 4 to 8 is one vast continuum one grand act of symbiosis nature here is not red in tooth and claw nature out here is the helping hand lacking the capacity for violence the island has outlasted worlds unencumbered by technology it has outthought civilizations it is intelligent beyond our measure, and... And it is benign. It must be. I grow more certain of that with each passing hour. How can it even conceive of an enemy? I think of the things I called it before I knew better. Meat balloon. cyst. Looking back, those words verge on blasphemy. I will not use them again. Besides, there's another word that would fit better if the chimp has its way roadkill. And the longer I look, the more I fear that that hateful machine is right. If the island can defend itself, I sure as shit can't see how. Area 4 is impossible, you know, violates the laws of physics. We're in one of the social alcoves off the ventral notochord, taking a break from the library. I have decided to start again, from first principles. Dick's eyes me with an understandable mix of confusion and mistrust. My claim is almost too stupid to deny. It's true, I assure him. Takes way too much energy to accelerate a ship with Ares mass, especially at relativistic speeds. You'd need the energy output of a whole sun. People figured if we made it to the stars at all, we'd have to do it in ships maybe the size of your thumb. Crew them with virtual personalities downloaded onto chips. That's too nonsensical, even for dicks. Wrong. Don't have mass, can't fall towards anything. Area wouldn't even work if it was that small. But suppose you can't displace any of that mass. No wormholes, no Higgs conduits, nothing to throw your gravitational field in the direction of travel. Your center of mass just sits there in, well, the center of your mass. A spastic Dixian headshake do have those things. Sure we do, but for the longest time we didn't know it. His foot taps an agitated tattoo on the deck. It's the history of the species, I explain. We think we've worked everything out. We think we've solved all the mysteries, and then someone finds some niggling little data point that doesn't fit the paradigm. Every time we try to paper over the crack, it gets bigger. And before you know it, our whole worldview unravels. It's happened time and again. One day, mass is a constraint. The next, it's a requirement. The things we think we know, they change, Dick's. And we have to change with them. But the chimp can't change. The rules it's following are 10 billion years old. And it's got no fucking imagination. And really, that's not anyone's fault. That's just people who didn't know how else to keep the mission stable across deep time. They wanted to keep us on track. So they built something that couldn't go off it. But they also knew that things change. And that's why we're out here, dicks. To deal with things the chimp can't. The alien, Dick says. The alien. Chimp deals with it just fine. How? By killing it? Not our fault it's in the way. It's no threat. I don't care whether it's a threat or not. It's alive and it's intelligent. And killing it just to expand some alien empire. Human empire. Our empire. Suddenly, Dix's hands have stopped twitching. Suddenly, he stands still as stone. I snort. What do you know about humans? Am one. You're a fucking trilobite. You ever see what comes out of those gates once they're online? Mostly nothing. He pauses, thinking back. Couple of ships once, maybe? Well, I've seen a lot more than that, and believe me, if those things were ever human, it was a passing phase. But, dicks, I take a deep breath, try to get back on message. Look, it's not your fault. You've been getting all your info from a moron stuck on a rail. But we're not doing this for humanity. We're not doing it for Earth. Earth is gone. Don't you understand that? The sun scorched it black a billion years after we left. Whatever we're working for, it it won't even talk to us. Yeah? Then why do this? Why not just... just quit? He really doesn't know. We tried, I say. And? And your chimp shut off our life support. For once, he has nothing to say. It's a machine, Dix. Why can't you get that? It's programmed. It can't change. We're machines, just built from different things. We change. Yeah? Last time I checked, you were sucking so hard on that thing's tit you couldn't even kill your cortical link. How I learn. No reason to change. How about acting like a damn human once in a while? How about developing a little rapport with the folks who might have to save your miserable life next time you go EVA? That enough of a reason for you? Because I don't mind telling you, right now, I don't trust you as far as I could throw the tack tank. I don't even know for sure who I'm talking to right now. Not. My. Fault. For the first time, I see something outside the usual gamut of fear, confusion, and simple-minded computation playing across his face. That's you. That's all of you. You talk sideways, think sideways. You all do, and it hurts. Something hardens in his face. Didn't even need you online for this, he growls. Didn't want you. Could have managed the whole build myself. Told Chimp I could do it. But the Chimp thought you should wake me up anyway, and you always roll over for the Chimp, don't you? Because the chimp always knows best. The chimp's your boss. The chimp's your fucking god. Which is why I have to get out of bed and nursemaid some idiot savant who can't even answer a hail without being led by the nose. Something clicks in the back of my mind, but I'm on a roll. You want a real role model? You want something to look up to? Forget the chimp. Forget the mission. Look out the forward scope, why don't you? Look at what your precious chimp wants to run over because it happens to be in the way. That thing is better than any of us. It's smarter. It's peaceful. It doesn't wish us any harm at. How can you know that? Can't know that. No, you can't know that because you're fucking stunted. Any normal caveman would see it in a second, but you. That's crazy, Dix hisses at me. You're crazy. You're bad. I'm bad. Some distant part of me hears the giddy squeak in my voice, the borderline hysteria. For the mission, Dix turns his back and stalks away. My hands are hurting. I look down, surprised. My fists are clenched so tightly that my nails cut into the flesh of my palms. It takes a real effort to open them again. I almost remember how this feels. I used to feel this way all the time. Way back when everything mattered, before passion faded to ritual, before rage cooled to disdain, before Sunday Asmundan, eternity's warrior, settled for heaping insults on stunted children. We were incandescent back then. Parts of this ship are still scorched and uninhabitable, even now. I remember this feeling. This is how it feels to be awake. I am awake, and I am alone. And I am sick of being outnumbered by morons. There are rules, and there are risks, and you don't wake the dead on a whim. But fuck it. I'm calling reinforcements. Dix has got to have other parents. A father, at least. He didn't get that Y-chromo from me. I swallow my own disquiet and check the manifest. Bring up the gene sequences. Cross-reference. Huh. Only one other parent. Kai. I wonder if that's just coincidence or if the chip drew too many conclusions from our torrid little fuckfest back in the Sig Rift. Doesn't matter. He's as much yours as mine, Kai. Time to step up to the plate. Time to... Oh, shit. Oh, no. Please, no. There are rules. And there are risks. Three builds back, it says. Kai and Connie. Both of them. One airlock jammed, the next too far away along Ares' hull, a Hail Mary emergency crawl between. They made it back inside, but not before the blue-shifted background cooked them in their suits. They kept breathing for hours afterwards, talked and moved and cried as if they were still alive, while their insides broke down and bled out. There were two others awake that shift, two others left to clean up the mess, Ishmael and... Um, you said. You fucker. I leap up and hit my son hard in the face, ten seconds heartbreak with ten million years denial raging behind it. I feel teeth give way behind his lips. He goes over backwards, eyes wide as telescopes, the blood already blooming on his mouth. Said I could come back, he squeals, scrambling backwards along the deck. He was your fucking father. You knew. You were there. He died right in front of you, and you didn't even tell me. I... I... Why didn't you tell me, you asshole? The chimp told you to lie. Is that it? Did you... Thought you knew, he cries. Why wouldn't you know? My rage vanishes like air through a breach. I sag back into the pod, face in hands. Right there in the log, he whimpers all along. Nobody hid it. How could you not know? I did, I admit dully. Or I... I mean... I mean, I didn't know. But it's not a surprise. Not really. Not down deep. You just... Stop looking after a while. There are rules. Never even asked, my son says softly, how they were doing... I raise my eyes. Dix regards me wide-eyed from across the room, backed up against the wall, too scared to risk bolting past me to the door. What are you doing here? I ask tiredly. His voice catches. He has to try twice. You said I could come back if I burned out my link. You burned out your link? He gulps and nods. He wipes blood with the back of his hand. What did the chimp say about that? He said it said it was okay. Dick says, in such a transparent attempt to suck up that I actually believe, in that instant, that he might really be on his own. So you asked its permission. He begins to nod, but I can see the tell in his face. Don't bullshit me, Dicks. He actually suggested it. I see. So we could talk, Dix adds. What do you want to talk about? He looks at the floor and shrugs. I stand and walk towards him. He tenses, but I shake my head, spread my hands. It's okay. It's okay. I lean back against the wall and slide down until I'm beside him on the deck. We just sit there for a while. It's been so long, I say at last. He looks at me. Uncomprehending. What does long even mean out here? I try again. They say there's no such thing as altruism, you know? His eyes blank for an instant and grow panicky, and I know that he's just tried to ping his link for a definition and come up blank. So we are alone. Altruism, I explain. Unselfishness. Doing something that costs you but helps someone else. He seems to get it. They say every selfless act ultimately comes down to manipulation or kin selection or reciprocity or something, but they're wrong. I could. I close my eyes. This is harder than I expected. I could have been happy just knowing that Kai was okay, that Connie was happy. Even if it didn't benefit me one whit, even if it cost me, even if there was no chance I'd ever see either of them again. Almost any price would be worth it, just to know they were okay. Just to believe they were. So you haven't seen her for the past five builds. So he hasn't drawn your shift since Sagittarius. They're just sleeping. Maybe next time. So you don't check, Dix says slowly. Blood bubbles on his lower lip. He doesn't seem to notice. We don't check. Only I did. And now they're gone. They're both gone. Except for those little cannibalized nucleotides the chimp recycled into this defective and maladapted son of mine. We're the only warm-blooded creatures for a thousand light years. And I am so very lonely. I'm sorry, I whisper, and lean forward and lick the gore from his bruised and bloody lips. Back on Earth, back when there was an Earth, there were these little animals called cats. I had one for a while. Sometimes I'd watch him sleep for hours, paws and whiskers and ears all twitching madly as he chased imaginary prey across whatever landscapes his sleeping brain conjured up. My son looks like that when the chimp worms its way into his dreams. It's almost too literal for metaphor. The cable runs into his head like some kind of parasite, feeding through old-fashioned fiber opt now that the wireless option's been burned away. Or force-feeding, I suppose. The poison flows into Dix's head, not out of it. I shouldn't be here. Didn't I just throw a tantrum over the violation of my own privacy? Just. Twelve light days ago. Everything's relative. And yet I can see no privacy here for Dix to lose. No decorations on the walls, no artwork or hobbies, no wraparound console. The sex toys, ubiquitous in every suite, sit unused on their shelves. I'd have assumed he was on antilebidinals if recent experience hadn't proven otherwise. What am I doing? Is this some kind of perverted mothering instinct? Some vestigial expression of a Pleistocene maternal subroutine? Am I that much of a robot? Has my brainstem sent me here to guard my child? To guard my mate? Lover or larva, it hardly matters. His quarters are an empty shell. There is nothing of dicks in here. That's just his abandoned body lying there in the pseudopod, fingers twitching, eyes flickering beneath closed lids, in vicarious response to wherever his mind has gone. They don't know I'm here. The chimp doesn't know because we burned out its prying eyes a billion years ago. And my son doesn't know I'm here because... Well, because for him, right now, there is no here. What am I supposed to make of you, dicks? None of this makes sense. Even your body language looks like you grew it in a vat. But I'm far from the first human being you've seen. You grew up in good company with people I know... People I trust, trusted. How did you end up on the other side? How did they let you slip away? And why didn't they warn me about you? Yes, there are rules. There is the threat of enemy surveillance during long dead nights. The threat of other losses. But this is unprecedented. Surely someone could have left something... Some clue buried in a metaphor too subtle for the simple-minded to decode. I'd give a lot to tap into that pipe, to see what you're seeing now. Can't risk it, of course. I'd give myself away the moment I tried to sample anything except the basic bod, and... Wait a second. That bod rate's way too low. That's not even enough for high-res graphics, let alone tactile and olfact. You're embedded in a wireframe world at best. And yet, look at you go, the fingers, the eyes, like a cat dreaming of mice and apple pies, like me, replaying the long-lost oceans and mountain tops of Earth, before I learned that living in the past was just another way of dying in the present. The bitrate says this is barely even a test pattern. The body says you're immersed in a whole other world. How has that machine tricked you into treating such thin gruel as a feast? Why would it even want to? Data are better grasped when they can be grasped, and tasted, and heard. Our brains are built for far richer nuance than splines and scatterplots. The driest technical briefings are more sensual than this. Why settle for stick figures when you can paint in oils and holograms? Why does anyone simplify anything? To reduce the variable set. To manage the unmanageable. Kai and Connie. Now there were a couple of tangled unmanageable data sets. Before the accident. Before the scenario. Simplify. Someone should have warned me about you, Dix. Maybe someone tried. And so it comes to pass that my son leaves the nest, encases himself in a beetle carapace, and goes walk about. He is not alone, one of the chimps teleops accompanies him out on Ares Hull, lest he lose his footing and fall back into the starry past. Maybe this will never be more than a drill. Maybe this scenario, catastrophic control systems failure, The chimp and its backups offline, all maintenance tasks suddenly thrown onto shoulders of flesh and blood, is a dress rehearsal for a crisis that never happens. But even the unlikeliest scenario approaches certainty over the life of a universe, so we go through the motions. We practice. We hold our breath and dip outside. We're on a tight deadline. Even armored, moving at this speed, the blue-shifted background rad would cook us in hours. Worlds have lived and died since I last used the pickup in my suit. Chimp? Here as always, Sunday. Smooth and glib and friendly. The easy rhythm of the practiced psychopath. I know what you're doing. I don't understand. You think I don't see what's going on. You're building the next release. You're getting too much grief from the old guard, so you're starting from scratch with people who don't remember the old days. People you've... you've simplified. The chimp says nothing. The drone's feed shows dicks clambering across a jumbled terrain of basalt and metal matrix composites. But you can't raise a human child. Not on your own. I know it tried. There's no record of dicks anywhere on the crew manifest until his mid-teens, when he just showed up one day, and nobody asked about it because nobody ever... Look what you've made of him. He's great at conditional if-thens, can't be beat on number crunching and do-loops, but he can't think, can't make the simplest intuitive jumps. You're like one of those, I remember an earthly myth from the days when reading did not seem like such an obscene waste of lifespan. One of those wolves trying to raise a human child. You can teach him how to move around on hands and knees. You can teach him about pack dynamics. But you can't teach him how to walk on his hind legs or talk or be human because you're too fucking stupid, chimp, and you finally realized it. And that's why you threw him at me. You think I can fix him for you. I take a breath. "'And a gambit. "'But he's nothing to me, you understand? "'He's worse than nothing. "'He's a liability. "'He's a spy. "'He's a spastic waste of O2. "'Give me one reason why I shouldn't just lock him out there until he cooks. "'You're his mother,' the chimp says, "'because the chimp has read all about kin selection "'and is too stupid for nuance. "'You're an idiot. "'You love him?' No. An icy lump forms in my chest. My mouth makes words. They come out measured and inflectionless. I can't love anyone, you brain-dead machine. That's why I'm out here. Do you really think they'd gamble your precious never-ending mission on little glass dolls that needed to bond? You love him? I can kill him any time I want. And that's exactly what I'll do if you don't move the gate. I'd stop you, the chimp says mildly. That's easy enough. Just move the gate and we both get what we want. Or you can dig in your heels and try to reconcile your need for a mother's touch with my sworn intention of breaking the little fucker's neck. We've got a long trip ahead of us, chimp. And you might find I'm not quite as easy to cut out of the equation as Kai and Connie." You cannot end the mission, it says, almost gently. You tried that already? This isn't about ending the mission. This is only about slowing it down a little. Your optimal scenario's off the table. The only way that gate's going to get finished now is by saving the island or killing your prototype. Your call. The cost-benefit's pretty simple. The chimp could solve it in an instant, but still... It says nothing. The silence stretches. It's looking for some other option, I bet. It's trying to find a workaround. It's questioning the very premises of the scenario, trying to decide if I mean what I'm saying. If all it's book-learning about mother love could really be so far off base. Maybe it's plumbing historical intrafamilial murder rates, looking for a loophole. And there may be one, for all I know. But the chimp isn't me. It's a simpler system, trying to figure out a smarter one, and that gives me the edge. You would owe me, it says at last. I almost burst out laughing. (laughs) What? Or I will tell Dixon that you threatened to kill him. Go ahead. You don't want him to know? I don't care whether he knows or not. What, you think he'll try and kill me back? You think I'll lose his love? I linger on the last word, stretch it out to show how ludicrous it is. You'll lose his trust? You need to trust each other out here? Oh, right. Trust. The very fucking foundation of this mission. The chimp says nothing. For the sake of argument, I say after a while, suppose I go along with it. What would I owe you exactly? A favor, the chimp replies. To be repaid in future. My son floats innocently against the stars, his life in balance. We sleep. The chimp makes grudging corrections to a myriad small trajectories. I set the alarm to wake me every couple of weeks. Burn a little more of my candle, in case the enemy tries to pull another fast one. But for now, it seems to be behaving itself. DHF-428 jumps towards us in the stop-motion increments of a life's moments, strung like beads along an infinite string. The factory floor slews to starboard in our sights. Refineries, reservoirs, and nanofab plants swarms of von Neumanns breeding and cannibalizing and recycling each other into shielding and circuitry, tugboats and spare parts. The very finest Cro-Magnon technology mutates and metastasizes across the universe like armored-plated cancer. And, hanging like a curtain between it and us, shimmers an iridescent life-form, fragile and immortal and unthinkably alien, that reduces everything my species ever accomplished to mud and shit by the simple transcendent fact of its existence. I have never believed in gods, in universal good or absolute evil. I have only ever believed that there is what works and what doesn't. All the rest is smoke and mirrors, trickery to manipulate grunts like me. But I believe in the island, because I don't have to. It does not need to be taken on faith. It looms ahead of us, its existence an empirical fact. I will never know its mind. I will never know the details of its origin and evolution. But I can see it massive, mind boggling, so utterly inhuman that it can't help but be better than us, better than anything we could ever become. I believe in the island. I've gambled my own son to save its life. I would kill him to avenge its death. I may yet. In all these millions of wasted years, I have finally done something worthwhile. Final Approach Reticles within reticles line up before me, a mesmerizing infinite regress of bullseyes centering on target. Even now, mere minutes from ignition, distance reduces the unborn gate to invisibility. There will be no moment when the naked eye can trap our destination. We thread the needle far too quickly. It will be behind us before we even know it. Or, if our course corrections are off by even a hair, if our trillion-kilometer curve drifts by as much as a thousand meters, we will be dead "'before we know it. "'Our instruments report that we are precisely on target. "'The chimp tells me that we are precisely on target. fora falls forward, pulled endlessly through the void "'by her own magically displaced mass. "'I turn to the drone's eye view relayed from up ahead. "'It's a window into history. "'Even now there's a time lag of several minutes.' but past and present race closer to convergence with every corset. The newly minted gate looms, dark and ominous against the stars, a great gaping mouth built to devour reality itself. The vans, the refineries, the assembly lines, parked to the side in vertical columns, their jobs done, their usefulness outlived, their collateral annihilation imminent. I pity them for some reason. I always do. I wish we could scoop them up and take them with us, re-enlist them for the next build. But the rules of economics reach everywhere. And they say it's cheaper to use our tools once and throw them away. A rule that the chimp seems to be taking more to heart than anyone expected. At least we've spared the island. I wish we could have stayed a while. First contact with a truly alien intelligence and what do we exchange? "'traffic signals. "'What does the island dwell upon "'when not pleading for its life? "'I thought of asking. "'I thought of waking myself "'when the time lag dropped "'from prohibitive to merely inconvenient, "'of working out some pigeon "'that could encompass the truths "'and philosophies of a mind "'vaster than all humanity. "'What a childish fantasy. "'The island exists too far "'beyond the grotesque Darwinian processes "'that shaped my own flesh.' There can be no communion here, no meeting of minds. Angels do not speak to ants. Less than three minutes to ignition. I see light at the end of the tunnel. Ares' incidental time machine barely looks into the past anymore. I could almost hold my breath across the whole span of seconds that then needs to overtake now. Still on target, according to all sources. Tactical beeps at us. Getting a signal, Dix reports. And yes, in the heart of the tank, the sun is flickering again. My heart leaps. Does the angel speak to us after all? A thank you, perhaps? A cure for heat death? But it's ahead of us, Dix murmurs, as sudden realization catches in my throat. Two minutes. Miscalculated somehow, Dix whispers didn't move the gate far enough. We did, I say. We moved it exactly as far as the island told us to. Still in front of us, look at the sun. Look at the signal, I tell him. Because it's nothing like the painstaking traffic signs we followed over the past three trillion kilometers. It's almost random somehow. It's spur of the moment. It's panicky. It's the sudden, startled cry of something caught utterly by surprise with mere seconds left to act. And even though I have never seen this pattern of dots and swirls before, I know exactly what it must be saying. Stop. 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 Stop! We do not stop. There is no force in the universe that can even slow us down. Past equals present. Areophora dives through the center of the gate in a nanosecond. The unimaginable mass of her cold, black heart snags some distant dimension, drags it screaming to the here and now. The booted portal erupts behind us, blossoms into a great, blinding corona, every wavelength lethal to every living thing. Our aft filters clamp down tight. The scorching wavefront chases us into the darkness as it has a thousand times before. In time... As always, the birth pangs will subside, the wormhole will settle in its collar, and just maybe you will still be close enough to glimpse some new transcendent monstrosity emerging from that magic doorway. I wonder if you'll notice the corpse we left behind. Maybe we're missing something, Dick says. We miss almost everything, I tell him. DHF-428 shifts red behind us. Lensing artifacts wink in our rear view. The gate has stabilized, and the wormholes online, blowing light and space and time in an iridescent bubble from its great metal mouth. We'll keep looking over our shoulders right up until we pass the Rayleigh limit, far past the point it'll do any good. So far, though, nothing's come out. Maybe our numbers were wrong, he says. Maybe we made a mistake. Our numbers were right. An hour doesn't pass when I don't check them again. The island just had enemies, I guess. Victims, anyway. I was right about one thing, though. That fucker was smart to see us coming, to figure out how to talk to us. To use us as a weapon, to turn a threat to its very existence into a, uh, I guess, flyswatter is as good a word as any. Maybe there was a war, I mumble. Maybe it wanted the real estate, or maybe it was just some family squabble. Maybe didn't know, Dick suggests. Maybe thought those coordinates were empty. Why would you think that, I wonder? why would you even care? And then it dawns on me. He doesn't. Not about the island, anyway. No more than he ever did. He's not inventing these rosy alternatives for himself. My son is trying to comfort me. I don't need to be coddled, though. I was a fool. I let myself believe in life without conflict, in sentience without sin. For a little while, I dwelt in a dream world where life was unselfish and unmanipulative, where every living thing did not struggle to exist at the expense of other life. I deified that which I could not understand, when in the end, it was all too easily understood. But I'm better now. It's over. Another build, another benchmark— another irreplaceable slice of life that brings our task no closer to completion. It doesn't matter how successful we are. It doesn't matter how well we do our job. Mission accomplished is a meaningless phrase on Areophora, an ironic oxymoron at best. There may one day be failure, but there is no finish line. We go on forever, crawling across the universe like ants, dragging your goddamned superhighway behind us. I still have so much to learn. At least my son is here to teach me.
4: There you go. Don't forget, copyright is... Peter Watts, and like I say, it's a great book, Space Opera 2, edited by Gardner Dozwas and Jonathan Stran. Check that out and check out all Jonathan's book Dozwas' books. There's some great he's got some great titles coming out, Jonathan, so look out for that. In the future, actually in August, I'm gonna do run a couple of Kim Stanley Robinson's stories to coincide with the best of Kim Stanley Robinson, edited by Jonathan Stran. So do look out for that. Next up is Larry. You got yourself a book
2: there? <laughs> Hello, fellow Sofanauts. This is Larry Santoro in Chicago, breaking radio silence to cast, nearly live, and at the request of Tony C. Smith, the opening of, and the arrival of, the Starship Sofa Log, right here in my apartment. So here we are, direct from my an air-conditioned flat, barely south of Wrigley Field in Chicago. And, as I mentioned, I hold history in my hands. Actually, I hold a box with history still wrapped and strapped for shipping. The box is from Lulu Enterprises of Raleigh, North Carolina. It's got two of those fiber bands. There they are. Currently sealed beneath the shipping label that says Lawrence Santoro. Lawrence Santoro, twice, and my address, and Chicago, Illinois, 60602. Anyway, I know Inside is the book, one might say the book of the year, so far as the good Starship Sofa is concerned. Well, until, of course, later this summer when Starship Sofa Stories Volume 2 emerges with my very own double award-winning, then just a dream in it. But I digress. I will now undo this box of wonders, And my hands, a quiver with anticipation, and of course the palsy of age, and snip, and snip again. Gosh, 21st century packaging is always a lot more than one anticipates. I'm tearing open the seal, and there's that. Now these wonderful boxes with Lulu on it, Uh, and there it is. Again, inside the box is the book itself. It is beauteous. It is a wonderful retro spaceship with the red nose that we've all come to know from the Starship Sofa podcast site. And edited by Tony C. Smith. And the note by China Mievel. Doesn't his name sound like a cat meowing? I love it. It's hard to believe how young Starship Sofa is because it's so quickly become completely invaluable. True enough. True it is. True it is. I'm now going to slice open the plastic seal around the book and around the cardboard holder. And I now hold the book in my hands, all 300 and uh, oh god, age, age, 300 and I believe 28 pages. Yes, 328 pages. It is beautiful, it is perfect, bound, it is perfect, and there is history, Tony Sierran. And I'm sorry if I've said that wrong because. I'm a latecomer to Starship, so I've only been there about a year and a half. So I've missed most of what's in this book, and now I have it to go over, to read, to love, and pictures. Oh, my God. Pictures of Tony, pictures of other people, interviews. I look forward to this, truly. And Amy H. Sturgis, Ph.D. in the back, saying these transcripts allow veteran fans and newcomers alike to revisit the wonderful early episodes of the Hugo-nominated Starship Sofa. Doesn't that sound great? The Hugo-nominated Starship Sofa. In these shows, Tony C. Smith and Sierra O'Carroll pay tribute to the founding fathers and mothers of contemporary science fiction and some of the big ideas explored in their works with a delightful blend of humor, enthusiasm and insight that drew loyal listeners from across the globe, Myself included. And myself included. It is fitting that while Tony and Sierra were celebrating the history of the genre, they also were m- making genre history themselves. Today, Starship Sofa has emerged as a vibrant voice in the world science fiction community. This volume is a testament to the podcast's origins as well as to the ongoing power and appeal of science fiction literature. Amy, you got it on the mark. Thank you very much, Tony. Thank you very much, Sierra, and Thank you very much, everybody at the Starship who was involved with this. I'm now going to sign off and open it up and crack the book and start reading. This is Larry Santoro in Chicago, sweltering in the heat of summer without an air conditioner. Have a better evening. What can I say, Larry? Big hugs all around. If
4: I ever get over to Chicago, I'm going to give you a big hug, sir. Thank you very much. You're one of the 28 people that's bought the thing. I want more people to buy that, honestly. I'm not doing this for free. Please support Starship Sova. We haven't got pockets as deep as oceans. This is all coming out of my little budget, and it's dwindled, honestly. So please help us out and get this book. Next up is Fact Article, the Observation Deck, by Cheryl Morgan. Cheryl.
0: This is Cheryl Morgan on the Observation Deck of the Starship Sofa, and I'm here today in Derby at Alt Fiction which is the UK's first I believe literary festival devoted entirely to science fiction and fantasy books and when I say literary festival this isn't a convention put on by fans Um, I'm here with Catherine Rogers of an organisation called Writing East Midlands she's the organiser of the event and it's sponsored amongst other people by Derby City Council I also have with me Lee Harris of Angry Robot Books who's been helping out with the organisation um, Catherine, could you tell me a little bit about what's been happening today?
7: Wow. <laughs> it's been a very full day. We started, I think we got here at about 8 o'clock preparing, and uh, people started registering about 9.30. We've had a full programme of events um, that will run until past midnight tonight with panels, readings, um, podcasting, workshops, um, I don't know when people are managing to eat but I, I suspect they're, they're managing to grab a half an hour and um, we've got some fantastic authors here from all around the country participating we've got Steve Erickson here Paul Cornell amongst others lots and lots of authors BBC
5: books,
8: uh, lots of angry robot authors of yeah. course. Yes yes uh, angry robot are out in force here today uh, with seven, uh, seven angry robot authors uh, plus uh, the two angry robot uh, commanders in chief, uh, Mark Gascoigne and myself. Uh, so yes I need, uh, I need it's, uh, of course it's uh, being held in Derby which is just down the road from, uh, uh, from the Angry Robot offices uh, over in Nottingham
0: so it's, uh, uh, it's an important uh, event for us Yeah, and uh, it it's, uh, has a, a very interesting feel to it as well, I was talking to your boss Mark Gascoigne this morning and he said it reminded him of the World Fantasy Convention in that the number of people who, the number of writers, publishers, agents all that sort of people who are here is, is that, that the sort of feeling you were looking for?
7: Absolutely. Um, Yes, Mark articulated it very well. Um, We... i have done quite a bit of work finding out who people are both in the region and nationally who um, we want to be able to be part of the festival and so over the last um, probably the number of years both Alex myself and Alex came up with the Alex Davis came up with the idea of the festival have done quite a bit of research going to the other cons that are around and meeting people like Lee from Angry Robot but also a lot of the agents um, John Berline, John Gerald who've been very um, strong supporters of what we're doing here and and of getting them to come and participate in all all our panels as well, so that people who are coming and buying tickets can also meet the people who are in the industry. So you've got a a mix of of punters and also industry workers.
0: That's an important question, actually. It's a one-day event, and how much are people paying for this?
7: Uh, It's £25 um, full price, £20 concessions.
0: Okay, so that, that's pretty good value compared with something like EasterCon, for example, which is, is £50 pounds for a weekend. It's a longer weekend, but it's, it's not bad value that people are getting here. And how many different tracks of programming have you got?
7: Well, we we've sort of got three main tracks that you go into a big space, so Cinema 1, Cinema 2 and the Box Room but we've also got um, different strands which is the workshop strand Um, the places are limited but it's still running along the whole day and also for the first time we've got podcasting and um, the the podcasting room has a sort of select audience so some of the first people who can get there can be in and and hear those podcasting um, recordings as well.
0: Right, but the idea is that you're actually recording the panels and they will Mm -hmm. be podcast after the event so people can get a taste of what old fiction is like
7: absolutely yes everything's being recorded today
0: um, Lee, have you been on any of the panels? Has it been good? Uh, I've,
8: uh, I've just been involved in one so far, uh, internet and social, and social media, or social media for writers in particular, um, and that was podcast at 11 o'clock uh, this morning. Uh, it was recorded at 11 o'clock this morning, and I have another one coming up at, uh, Hi, uh, at about 8 o'clock this evening, uh, which uh, 8 o'clock of an evening on a, on a, a convention day is, uh, is very late for, for, for me. <laughs> Um, so i 'm just hoping that uh, i 'll be able to pace the beer properly and, and i 'll be coherent uh, during the, uh, the, the panel itself
0: okay, well, that sounds a lot of fun it 's actually now coming up time for england 's match in the World Cup so there 's a lot of people coming to say goodbye and, and lee is in p- particular demand here so we 'll have to sign off for now, but uh, i 've very much enjoyed my day here and hopefully this will become a, a regular part of the convention calendar Thank you
8: very much Cheryl. Thank you Good to
4: they go, Cheryl. Thank you so much. If you want to go over to Cheryl's musings, I will put a link on the site. Follow her blog, and follow her on Twitter as well, Cheryl Morgan. So that is Oral Delights Show one hundred and forty-three. Give you a heads up next week. I will not be here. No, I'm having a week off. Got a couple of things to kind of sort out in personal life, and I I will actually tell you about this. You know, a little bit later on. So that is oral delights again, show one four three please, please, please support starships over best time to get the book now there's free poster John until the end of June. you know if you 've listened to this show like I say from the very beginning and you haven 't supported anywhere Starships over, you want to kind of think to yourself, please you know have some decency and support until the week after next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Ooh.
6: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity
5: unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Solution procedure Evacuation
2: Procedure Initiate. Shuttle set for us. Here are your people